Marty's Late Night Movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Sometimes these projects gel. Sometimes they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And stop cross-examining me every time the phone rings. <laughs> we are continuing on this week with none other than Mon Stober. And of course, Zach is here once again, so when he introduced himself as Zach, it was appropriate, which is always a fun thing. And we are talking about a, a very different movie than I think we ever have in any of our Monstovers. But before we can get into that, we have to uh, do a little advertisement, Zach. So it's a, it's a good type of advertisement because it's for uh, Cinemodities, but specifically, as our audience has been hearing, you can now check out the Cinemodities Patreon page. So please, everybody, it's very serious. Ben, he's not here because he needs an operation. We're trying to raise money for Ben's lobotomy. He really needs one. So please join our Patreon for some bonus content and to support Ben getting an ice pick through his brain. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I was giving you Ben's rhinoplasty based on today's movie. (laughs) Yeah, who's who's getting... um, Who's getting their, their face taken off? I'm jumping ahead. I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> I know. Spoiler alert. Spoiler so alert. we uh, we are going to jump right into it, I think, unless Zach has any, any top-line items. But I guess we'll continue on with Monstober. We are discussing Seconds from 1966, the John Frankenheimer film. And I guess what better way to start with Zach being back and us being the connoisseurs of context. Um, my context is pretty simple. I had never heard of this movie until Zach put it in the spreadsheet years ago. I think it's been in there forever. And yeah, it's been there for a while. It finally came around that we were going to talk about it this Monstober. And so I watched it twice in preparation for this recording. Maybe, you know, like uh, three, four days apart. Since I'd never seen it and I knew it was an older movie, I wanted to really be able to wrap my head around it and, you know, have some good thoughts on it. And I have to say the first time I watched it, nothing really struck me about it as a Monstober movie. After the second viewing, I think it started to click with me a little bit more, but I think that's something I definitely wanted you to add in your context, like you weren't going to already, Zach. Do, like, how the hell did you find this movie? What, what made you like, uh, be drawn to it? And especially, why does this fit into Monstober? Because I think last week it makes perfect sense. The remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that's a, that's a slam dunk, like we talked about. But this one was a little odd to me. So, so fill us in, please. I have to say, this is an amazing juxtaposition between movies. The Texas Chainsaw <laughs> Massacre remake, and then John Frankenheimer's Seconds. Like, I, like that is the sort of just genre whiplash yes. that you can only get in Monstober and from myself. Like, Rob does a lot of weird stuff, but, like, I do weird stuff, and, like, it's, it's 100% unintentional. Um, because next week's movie very much is a Monstover film. Oh, yeah. But, uh, no, my context for Seconds is... I would say almost as brief as Rob's Mm. Um, Rob watched this movie twice in preparation for this episode in the last couple of weeks. I've seen this movie twice in the last five years that I've been aware of it. (laughs) Okay. Um, And that's pretty much it. Like I bought this movie this because it was a criterion Blu-ray release. I bought it because I still have the receipt in the Blu-ray box. I bought it on July 30th, 2015 at 1050 AM Make note of that. It may be important later on. I only spent $16.99 on it, and my cashier was Linda H. So, Linda H., if you're out there, good job. Linda Hamilton? 
<laughs> I think it's Linda Hamilton. I think it is. I think that's where she ended up after a Terminator Dark Fate bombed. Did you or say? She knew. Did you say where you got it from? Did I miss that? Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble. Okay, I thought this was going to yes. be another Fye purchase, but 2015 is too no. late for that. <laughs> no, no, too late for that. I was already out of college by then. But no, I had heard of this movie because at this point, I think this is when I was like going on Blu-ray.com. And I was just kind of always looking for stuff through like the related movie section. Like you look up a Blu-ray review the bomb. They have like I think 30 movies, and they'd be like oh related titles and i remember seeing because like any sort of criterion film it was uh it had some unique like custom designed uh cover art mm-hmm. and i'm like oh they're like okay i clicked on it and like the description is that, like a man regoes like gets a second chance the life he wanted uh he gets turned into rock hudson <laughs> and i'm like what i'm like rock hudson and I'm like, what is this? So, like, I looked into it. I couldn't find a copy of the movie anywhere um, in legal sources, not in Rob World. And I'm like, okay. And then I think I waited for, as Rob knows, the reason why we're probably not going to do The Elephant Man for the last episode in Monstober. Uh, Barnes & Noble does its bi-yearly Criterion sales where they're 50% off. And I waited for one of those, and I got it. And I'm like, I was excited to watch it. I, again, this movie always kind of... From what I'd little I'd be able to see of it from trailers and stuff, I was intrigued by it, and I watched it, and it's it's a weird movie. It's a weird movie with a lowercase w because it's very subtle in how just odd it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some really unsettling parts to it that we'll definitely delve into over the course of this episode. But I really. I'd say overall I was disappointed with it because I was expecting this really kind of just weird out there movie, kind of like a, again, a definition of a cult classic or just kind of like this really bizarre film. And then I'd say, but I always remembered it. It was one of those movies that I'd always kind of throw into the conversation to people like, oh, you ever seen Seconds? And because, again, it's a movie nobody's – people have never seen because when you think of John Frankenheimer from this period, if you even know who John Frankenheimer is, you automatically go to Manchurian Candidate. You, yeah. don't, you, don't, you don't think of seconds. And so it really was one of those movies I would throw at people when they say they knew what like, – anytime it's like, oh, I know a lot about movies, and I'd always throw this at them, and they have no idea what I was talking about. Um, then I'd say – Oh God, in the last month or two, I was thinking about movies, as Rob knows, that would be, again, the constant hurdle of Monstober that Rob's hearing much and much about every single week is that I'm trying to find stuff that I have a lot to say, but at the same time, people have not – there's not a lot of discourse on it. And there's always the ups and downs. Like I know we've talked about I want to do Evil Dead. I want to do Hellraiser. And it's like there's really – everybody's talked those films to death at this point. So mm-hmm. what's what's the point of us talking about it? There's really not much for us to add to it that hasn't already been said. So this came to mind. I rewatched it, and I'm like this has the weirdness aspect. And I think there's a lot of just – very unsettling things about this movie on a superficial level. Sure. But I think it's also, and I didn't really think of this term. I never heard of this term before until I started doing research for this. Cause there's only about one or two YouTube videos. As everybody knows, anytime we do a discussion, I always try to go through YouTube and see what the discourse is on a particular film. I know a couple of years ago, I tried looking into this film in that sort of under that sort of lens. There was nothing now about maybe a month ago, Someone made a video, and I think it's maybe the best way to describe this film. It's from a channel called In Praise of Shadows, and the title of the video is The Identity Horror of Seconds. And I think that's a really interesting way to describe this film, identity horror. Mm. 
And that's kind of, and, this, and it's a really good video for the most part. The guy who who does it and gives his commentary, he starts. Like, he has a lot. Go- he's he's really good. Then the last, I think, like five minutes, he starts calling the film misogynistic, and I'm like, oh god. <laughs> I'm like, aren't, aren't we past that yet as a culture? Being that being one of our favorite buzzwords, misogynistic. And so I'm like, no. Just because he doesn't focus on the women doesn't mean it's misogynistic. They are telling a story about one character, not about the female characters. He's like, just deal with it. Not everything that doesn't focus on women inherently hates women yeah i didn't get any misogynistic vibe from this um but identity horror is interesting i mean we'll get into it with what i thought about the 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 theme or the message of this movie was but uh, identity horror is a really neat phrase for it yeah but no the more i think about this movie it's there's really nothing quite like it it's very unique um the idea i guess we should probably delve into the plot or give some level of a synopsis because chances are most of you have never heard of this movie (laughs) um so so basically rob do you want to describe the plot of the movie yeah so so i I, um i guess the best way to start is uh we have this character arthur hamilton who is kind of uh successful in air quotes in life but he isn't really happy he gets sponsored or taken into this company that offers him a second chance where they will give him plastic surgery, fake his, his previous life's death, and, and put him in a new place so that he can, he can live as this new person. And it really is you know, reported as this second chance at life type of thing. And then, of course, he goes through with it. He doesn't exactly uh, find it working out the way that he expected. He blames the company for it, wants a third chance. They say, no, no, no. And eventually he realizes that he is just a a tool or a resource of this company in their medical field for creating new life. I guess that's a very a brief synopsis of it. I don't know how far we wanted to go into like any specific details because I, I definitely think this is a movie that I – I agree with you, Zach, that there are a lot of things like on the surface level that are very creepy and very, you know, haunting and surreal visuals and scenes. But I took a lot more. I I think I really dug into this movie in the sense of, well, the themes and and things like that, which I really liked. So so anything you wanted to add to my summary? No, I think you you, like I said, we'll delve more into it, but it gives it, it gives context enough that people know what they're getting involved with. Yeah. Um. So with all that being said, Rob. What did you think of this movie? Did you enjoy it? Did you – because I know you said you were surprised that I picked this yep. because it's not your conventional Monstober film. And like I said, folks, Monstober is is like a, a Rubik's Cube. It's constantly <laughs> just shifting. There's really no set Monstober. Like I said, I think I've said it every year. Monstober is not a time of year. It's a state of mind. Yes. Um, it goes it, from it, the end I, of July to beginning of uh, November or something like that now. <laughs> well, at this point, Monstober, it, it goes from the beginning of July to the beginning of July. Um, it's just <laughs> – it, it never ends. Monstober never ends. Rob's lucky because there's – again, there's going to be this, the uh, Cinemati's horror movie fort year. It's kind of like the 2001 thing is just a run through to see if I can ever do my origins of the slasher genre. Sure. Um, which I think I finally – definitively pegged after last week's episode i do want to say that before we started recording uh one of the things zach and i talked about off mic was um zach saying why did life have to get in the way we could have been doing monstover for the last three months (laughs) (laughs) indeed folks i forgot last year that i said if i had i was gonna start monstover sometime in july I'm really disappointed that <laughs> that I didn't do that. I'm really disappointed. Yes, um, me yes. and my stupid emotional rut. So, so I, I think to answer your question, um, like I said, I, I watched this twice. It kind of came out of nowhere. I didn't really know what to expect the first time I went into it. Um, I watched it 
for the second time, you know, out of really trying to refine my thoughts on it. But I, I have to say, overall, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I thought this was a very, very intriguing movie in the concepts that it was putting forward, and that's really what I latched on to. I think that it really works for me, like with the pacing and everything. I really like that, you know, we, we do have some... Uh, slight hints at the beginning of where it's going to go later on and things like that because it is almost cyclical in some sense. But overall, no, I th- I thoroughly enjoyed this and I was very surprised because I, I do have to say I don't know too much about John Frankenheimer. What I've seen from him, I'm not the biggest fan of. I mean, you know, The Manchurian Candidate, I, I've I've seen that a long time ago and I love it. Of course, Angela Lansbury, she's in it. How can you not like it? But I mean, the other one that I think I'm most familiar with is one of his later movies, uh, Ronin with Robert De Niro. And I hate that movie. Like, I've I've seen that a few times. Like, I've had people show it to me and try and explain to me why it's great. And I'm like, this is just boring and dumb and, like, by-the-numbers type of, you know, heist movie. And I, I could never get into John Frankenheimer. But this one, I'm like, oh, wow, this is actually very, very well done. And I guess that's just a running theme on Cinemodities. These, these big directors, famous directors, if we can even call Frankenheimer that in a popular sense, but definitely in the cinematic world. I guess I really like their lesser-known things, or the things that aren't big at the time but become these cult hits. But yeah, overall, I, I give this movie um, a very big thumbs up. It was really cool. Yeah, like this is the definition of an obscure. I think it's it's an obscure film. I think that's probably the best way to describe it because it's really it was out again. I don't know how successful it was. It's weird. It's hard to gauge stuff, especially back in that time period, yeah. like the, like the mid to late sixties, when Hollywood was changing so much at this time. But no, to my thoughts on the movie, I could tell, I guess I think I originally said the first time I watched it, I found it disappointing because I was expecting a different movie, mm-hmm. and which which is not what it is. And the second time I watched it, it's still odd. Um, it's it's I can't tell if it's slowly paced or it's methodically paced. I can't figure out which one they're which is they're going for because it's not a perfect movie. This is not any sort of um, like oh god, it's. It's obs- It's an obscure good film. I wouldn't call this a gem in any sense. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. Yeah, it kind of goes down to just because something's unique doesn't make it inherently good. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I th- and I think that's what it is. It's it's unique. But as time goes on, it's I found and in light of recent events in my life, I found it. I've appreciated a lot more because there is a lot. I think. The cinematography and the concept is very spooky, but I think the truly scary aspect of it is just the whole idea of just perpetual unhappiness. Sure, sure. I, I definitely got that sense. I think I – I guess the the biggest overarching idea I got of this movie is is kind of you know the, the conjunction of uh, what is the, the, the true metric for a life, like how do you measure a life conjoined with – this notion of fountain of youth that you'll retain the knowledge you have if you go through a fountain of youth, because I, I kind of see this movie as a big representation of like the, the birth and life process. If that makes sense. I guess that's where it kind of like part of the, that's the weird thing about talking about this movie. Cause this movie does operate on a bunch of layers, mm-hmm. but I think in a weird way, they kind of zig and zag into each other. That it's hard to dissect because, yes, you have that aspect of being reborn. You have Arthur ha- Arthur Hamilton, who's – I don't want to say a – how would you describe him? He's a very kind of ho-hum – I don't want to say homely-looking man, but he's clearly a man past his prime. Yeah, and, yeah. Very complacent in things, it seems. Yeah, and then he's he has a wife that loves him, but his life is just the definition of just – 
I don't want to say boring because that's that's not an articulate enough word, but it's just like I said, it's a very again. I think you're right, complacent, very again ho hum is my my best sure. way. To describe yeah, it. mundane, tedious, especially yes, you get that mundane. scene in the uh, when he's working and he's like uh, having his secretary dictate a letter that they're turning down a loan, and it's like. He he says like uh, two sentences and he's really distracted because of you know what's going on in the movie. But then he just kind of trails off and he goes et cetera et cetera standard closing. And it's like okay, he's done this so many times they have a standard closing. <laughs> exactly. And the fact is that this is a man Arthur Hamilton who has literally everything. Like he's accomplished everything he could ever want to accomplish. Mm-hmm. He has the wife. He has the the house. He has the job. He has the daughter that's off doing her own thing. To the point where it's just it's life has run its course. So he wants to he wants a new one. I think that goes back to what you're saying, the fountain of youth concept. Yeah. And he goes to this organization that again we'll we'll delve more into the plot as we advance through this. And he finds out that there are all these again, kind of like, oh God, secret handshakes and different doors you have to go through. They sit there, get in. And he eventually does all this and he kind that's the big thing. Another thing of this is I don't want to say it's oh god, not regret, but a form of almost buyer's remorse. Like yeah. it's like like regret takes many different forms, but this is almost like a form of buyer's remorse that he he experienced this experienced this a lot throughout the course of the film. And where he does he makes all these decisions and yet he immediately regrets them. Yes, yeah. That that's where I was going with um something I think probably my favorite aspect of the movie was it brought up an interesting idea to me. Something that I've never really thought about before. Well, of course, I think right on the surface level this movie does get at the idea of the fountain of youth where, you know, if you get older, you you have this opportunity to say, you know, go into the fountain of youth, you become younger, you get more life. I think it's always been kind of implicitly assumed and any time I've ever thought about or read or watched about the idea of the fountain of youth that, you know, let's say you live a life, you learn a lot of stuff. When you go through the fountain of youth, you come out as a younger person, but you retain all of the knowledge you had from your previous life per se. And I think this movie is saying, well, no, you might not. You might make the same mistakes that you did the first time around. Like rebirth might not be keeping all of that information and knowledge that you had. So is the fountain of youth really something worth going through? You have more time, but you end up making the same mistakes. And that really got me thinking about this movie. And I, I really love that idea because I had never thought about that before. Well, that's okay. But I have to ask you things. I think you and I might have interpreted this movie on two different levels. Okay. Not saying that this is not going to be like private parts where you and I argue over <laughs> back and forth the meaning of the ending of Cheryl. Yes, yes. But, but I think it comes down to is that – so you think this is a – I don't want to say a fountain of youth story, but the idea of, oh God, youth reclaimed. Sure, yeah, yeah, youth reclaimed, and and um, kind of you know I think you said it a good way. Buyer's remorse is is uh, that our main character gets has the realization that getting a second chance at life doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. It might just be life again. That's the thing. I, I but that's. You're not wrong, but how I looked at this is that it feels like a story of perpetual unhappiness. Okay, okay. The, it's in the same vein. I guess the best comparison that I can think of would be like almost the Great Gatsby. Mm, is mm. that it's the idea that like you can have everything, everything you can you can accomplish everything you you want, yet you're still you're just as miserable. Again, it goes back to probably, I think I've said it a few times on Cinemati's, my favorite quote of all time, 
I don't know if you could hear that. Someone just like Gunned ripped it? their motorcycle right outside That's my apartment. Yeah, That's someone just like, I'm like, oh my god! Someone totally just like fucking rev their engine outside of my apartment. <laughs> that was good. No, that came through well. Okay, wow. right on. I, I've I never heard it that loud. Like usually we get people with their subwoofers playing music, but that was like insane. <laughs> like I felt my apartment shake. I think. <laughs> I, I have to say, I think you'd be like, oh man, there's, there's a tremor. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> Um, no, but, uh, oh God, where was I going with this? It's the idea that you're able to, to, oh God. Uh, okay. Uh, great Gatsby. Yeah. It's the idea that you're able to accomplish everything that you wanted, but it's the, uh, it goes back to the Oscar Wilde quote that I love. It's that there are only two tragedies in life, mm-hmm. not getting what you want and getting what you want. I definitely thought of that quote while I was watching this movie. Definitely. <laughs> And I think that's the thing is that at the end of the day, Arthur Hamilton or just Tony are always going to be unhappy. I think that's the idea of it is that the company, which I don't think we're even given the name of, mm-hmm. is that it's it's you're right in that it's cyclical because I don't think any of these people that sign up for this are ever going to sit there, reach a destination. They're yeah. nev- it's their issue is not rebirth or being younger. It's the fact that they'll, they're never going to be happy because what they want is literally the impossible. It's the idea like there's almost like an obsession over and it's this is not really brought to the forefront in seconds, but there's like an obsession over the past. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you, and I think that I, I definitely um, found that sense of perpetual unhappiness as well, but I think I went a little further, and I, I I thought this movie was saying that it is, like, a fact of life type of thing. Without that knowledge, you don't get better through each life, you just repeat it. So I, I think I was, I think we're agreeing, but I, I had a different reason behind it, if, behind it, if that makes sense. I, I said maybe, maybe, like I said, maybe it's a further extrapolation, but I think that's the thing, is that, like, I guess it's the idea of like maybe even a tortured soul. Oh, sure. It's that you there. There's no is again. Maybe I'm wrong. Again, I'm not as uh, God informed on these sort of things as Rob is. But the idea is that is there any salvation for a tortured soul? That's an interesting idea. Um, real quick before I say that, it didn't come through on the mic, but after that motorcycle revving, I heard sirens <laughs> in the distance. <laughs> Who knows what the hell's going on out here right now? Oh boy. <laughs> But but the tortured soul idea is a really neat one um, because, you know, that makes me think of something I wasn't thinking about when I watched this movie and I wrote my notes is that, you know, maybe th- this movie is getting at the sense that he's making the same mistakes in life because of who he is as that tortured soul. And I think that gets back to what I was saying about this movie hits on the themes of, well, how do you measure a life? You know, what is a successful life? And the movie gets at the whole idea of, you know, I had things, I... I had worked towards all these goals that I had convinced myself I needed to work towards, but it didn't make me happy. And maybe that's the case. Maybe it's like these people who get reborn and, like you said, never find a destination. They're the ones who just keep consistently thinking, oh, I need to accomplish X, Y, and Z. Maybe I'll feel better about that same accomplishment if I'm in a different skin. And that's not necessarily the case. But that's but this is where I – I again, I'm, it's not that I disagree, but I think it's that – it's not this was about somebody who had like i don't know lived there had a mundane life mm-hmm. and just through like this would be kind of like the jordan peele twilight zone version of it it's like you have some guy who's a bum and not a bum but like really like mediocre has like has worked a dead-end job and then he gets offered this possibility like a uh, 
oh god uh, opportunity yeah and he gets to live like i don't know i guess the modern day equivalent is that like, you have somebody like oh god who's somebody who's mundane like mundane looking um you'd have oh god i can't believe i make this reference you would have someone like jim from the office and then he's able to be like reborn into like a rapper or like, he gets to relive his life as someone like post Malone, like yeah. something like that, where, where again, that would be the modern equivalent. Like, we would get that's a, all... we would get a scene at the start where the guy who's working his dead end office job gets like chewed out by his boss and made fun of by his colleagues. And it, yeah. re- and then he would get a complete like 180 in his life and he'd be successful. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yep. Like that'd be the modern day equivalent. And yeah, I don't, think that's again i think this is maybe one layer of interpretation of this movie because arthur hamilton has the wife Mm -hmm. he has a wife that loves him more than she i'm sorry that loves him more than he loves her he has a daughter who clearly that was raised correctly is on the right track and yet even that is unfulfilling for him yeah yeah I know that I know in a lot of the research, the biggest thing about this movie is that there was a deleted scene where Tony Rock Hudson um, interacts with the daughter, and that scene apparently was cut and it's lost. Yeah, I read uh, that as well. Apparently, and the, I did read. I, I read that in a few different places, and one of the sources I found was that apparently he was going to interact with the daughter and the husband, and the husband was supposed to be Leonard Nimoy. Oh, really? Yeah, that's I, what oh, I, in yeah. one source I read that, and I was yeah, like, that yeah, would have yeah, been yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I I get that. Like I, that would have been interesting to see. If the scene was lost, that's too bad. I would love to have seen a copy of the shooting script to get an idea of what that scene would have sure, looked like. Sure. But I think the reason why that scene was cut was because I think all the same pertinent informations or the the emotional resonance is there in the scene with the wife. Definitely. Because I think that's the thing is that when he goes and con- not confronts the wife, but when he revisits the wife and she's unaware of who he is, it's the idea that she was aware of how miserable he was, mm-hmm. but she was, I don't want to say, cause again, she, you could analyze her character almost as much as him. Oh yeah. But it's the idea that not that she's complacent, but that she realized how miserable he was. And the reason why she didn't try to intervene more than what she did is because she realized there's nothing she could do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was nothing that she's able to do because I think that goes back to the perpetual unhappiness of Arthur Hamilton is that there's nothing that can provide him solace. And I think that's the issue is that, is there any salvation for a tormented soul? And I think that's the thing. I don't – he does have – he's successful, I'd say, on every level anyone could ever hope to be. The problem is his version of – I don't want to say successful, but his version of happiness or even being content is unknowable for him. Yeah, He yeah. doesn't know what it is, and the only thing that he can find that could possibly allow him that salvation is – being reborn as a younger, more handsome, attractive man. Yeah, like you said to me, I'll say to you exactly the same way. I don't disagree with you for sure. Um, I I definitely think that a lot of that is, like you said, resonant in the scene with when he goes back to the wife as Rock Hudson. Um, I I guess I just took it more as, you know, he's trying the, to go back to what I said about he's trying to learn something about how how to do things better this second time, and he realizes he can't. Like, I really liked the scene with the wife, especially because we get this notion of he's almost going back to not only reclaim some of what he was, but trying to understand who he was. And he kind of gets this realization that 
the wife, or I guess in the abstract sense, I took it as, you know, other people that you think know you might know you, but under their own filter. And, you know, at the end of the day, which one is the truer version of you type of thing? And there is no answer to that question. There's no solace in that fact of, you know, getting, trying to get information from others about yourself if you don't know yourself to begin with. And, and like you said, I, I agree with the tormented soul idea. I think what I was saying adds to that for sure. And that's, but that's the thing I, I think is a little bit not, I don't want to say uneven about this film, but because you, he's like we said earlier, he's going to all these different places trying to find that solace. Mm-hmm. And every, like you were saying, is that nobody can kind of tell you how to be happy other than yourself. There's nobody can give you that quick fix. Yep. And yet he's doing that to the point where he thinks if he gets a third opportunity to do it, that this time he'll make it work. But then at the very end of the film is like, as they're giving him, I don't know, what is it? Do they, how is it they're killing him at the end? I know there's the drill, but what are they doing to him? Is that like, again, not the, is it a lobotomy? Is it? I think it's like a weird version of a lobotomy that they're going to like damage part of his brain. So he would like bleed into it or something. Cause they, I think they do say like, we're going to give him the hematoma here or something like that. Okay. Because the final thing he sees is he has a, it's, it's a memory. Yeah of the daughter and him on the beach and the daughter's on his shoulders and all that. And it's like, okay, the daughter was some level of solace for him. Yep. But that's the thing is that like, I think that almost runs contrary. Like it's a haunting image. The idea of seeing, you see the drill and then you see this memory as it gets like twisted and warped, but we can only assume it's a distortion of his brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the thing, though, is that there is no – I guess that's the only comforting memory he had. Yeah, I, I wasn't really sure about that because I, I didn't know whether to take it as that he was – in his final moments, he was realizing that you know family was the thing that he should have been happy with or that he – was kind of maybe, you know, trying to convince himself. Because that does run contradictory to earlier things. You know, even in the beginning when, like, Charlie's on the phone with him and then when he's talking to the founder of the company, he's just kind of like, yeah, I got a family, but they don't do much for me. And then for the last scene of the movie to be that that image of him with the daughter, like, was that the solace or was that kind of his realization that that was the solace? I don't know. I exactly. wasn't I wasn't sure how to think about that, yeah. That's what I mean. So it's like I don't... Like, that's the thing. It's so odd. And I don't know. Again, this movie's not perfect. It's mm-hmm. not. But that's the sort of stuff that just makes me wonder is that, like, okay, was there a deeper meaning to this? Uh, this this film, film feels very reminiscent to me to, like, what Vox Lux was. Like, there's something it's trying to convey. Okay. And I feel like it's on the tip of the director's tongue if they can't get it out. Mm. I, even though I, to this day, I still can't figure out exactly what Vox Lux is about, other than just the blatantly superficial aspect of it, about, sure. like, just, like, pop stars going awry, um, which means you pretty much have to discount the first half of the movie, where this is much more in the same vein. We're like, okay, like, you can go back for a second try, but it's not going to change anything. Yep. But that's but again, that's the interesting aspect of this. But that's uh, that that is the major philosophical dilemma of this film, as I see it. Yeah, you're you're definitely onto something there because I agree with you. Where there was um, uh, a lot of scenes where I, you know, I, the first time I watched it, like I said, I started to get this sense of this this 
this life and death, uh, the life and rebirth, like the uh, cyclical nature of it. And then as I was seeing more scenes, it was definitely not just apparent to me, like, oh, that represents this in that interpretation. I definitely had to think about it to see how it fit in, for sure. So I'm with you there, that it's not clear what the exact message of this was. And I think that's what we're finding in this discussion, that, you know, we can think about these in in very different ways, including what you said about that YouTube video, the identity horror. You know, I I wasn't even focusing a lot on the notion of identity in my interpretation as, I guess, so much as it doesn't relate to, you know, being reborn or anything like that. Yeah. No, like I said, there's, 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 a, there's a lot to this movie. And, I, and that's why I think this film really doesn't resonate with, with, with the culture in any sense. Sure. Is that it's... There, it's a weird movie. The idea, and especially that it's so—I don't want to say that it's dated, but at the same time, though, you can tell it's a product of the era in which it was made. Oh yeah, because this this sort of lifestyle doesn't really exist anymore. Yep, <laughs> that's what I mean. Because like, it's kind of like I, I don't want to call it a perversion of society because that's probably not the best way to describe it. But like we have that nowadays where people in their 50s can – like everybody dresses the same now. So if you're in your 50s, you can dress like a 20-year-old. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, no one's going to question it. And no, the other thing too is that like this film was weirdly ahead of its time too it may, where it came to things like plastic surgery. The idea of trying to look younger and – that's the thing is that like even though I don't I, I don't know if plastic surgery is as popular as it was 20 years ago when it was like kind of like a fad. Remember Botox and all things like that. Yeah. But this was well before that. Oh, yeah. I know. Actually, that's that's exactly where I was going to go in the sense that, you know, uh, this movie being from the 60s, I definitely see kind of, you know, the fingerprints of this movie or at least the ideas in it in future things. Like you said, with the plastic surgery and the the um, notion of getting younger, like, you know, it it. I couldn't help but think of, you know, something like Get Out or Face Off where they're they're using this kind of switch of perspectives. And even in the whole idea when he gets reborn and it's revealed later on in the movie that, you know, everybody around him is either reborn as well or they're plants by the company. I was like, oh, this mm-hmm. is something like The Truman Show or The Game where everything's being controlled. And so I thought it was interesting to kind of be like, oh, there's so many other movies that we know in the modern era that have these little tidbits of information and this movie kind of gloms it all into one yeah it, it, this definitely has been borrowed from over the years um but the thing too that I, I that like again the idea of the fountain of youth but maybe taking it in a different direction that you were you mentioning it earlier is that okay and this goes into specific parts that like arthur tony and well at this point when he's tony like when he's interacting with the girlfriend character mm-hmm. and I'm trying to figure out, like when, he, like when they, when she brings him to like the, how do I describe it, Rob? The, uh, the, the grape stomping orgy. The, the grape stomping orgy, something like that. Yes, the, the grape festival, <laughs> the wine the festival. Fest- yes, the grape stomping orgy. Um, that's officially what it's called. None of this wine festival nonsense. Stomp those grapes. Stomp those grapes. <laughs> orgy, orgy, orgy. that he seems to be like he's turned off mm-hmm. by like almost this like the 
oh god, Flower Child thing of the '60s, like the free free love and all that. Yeah, he's turned off by it though, and he sees it almost as like below him. But then they eventually have their gobble gobble one of us moment where they drag him in, and he seems to surrender to it. Mm-hmm. But then the very next scene is the party where he's getting drunk and he's letting the cat out of the bag. And that's just the things that like you would think because going back to that YouTube video, the identity horror one is that you, there is a level of the guy mentioned that, that like, Oh, Tony Arthur is repulsed by the antics of a younger generation. And then you, he, he eventually succumbs to it. And that's kind of it though, because what he does at the party next is very different than like kind of the idea of succumbing or not succumbing, surrendering to the activities of a newer gener- a youthful generation. Cause the party, he just kind of gets drunk. Yes. Yeah. Is I, there a disconnect there? Or is it just me? I definitely thought there was some disconnect, but more so in the sense that I took those two scenes, which you are absolutely correct. They are, you know, I think back to back pretty much that we are seeing in, you know, me fitting it into my theory about this movie being about like the, the process of life. I think that it was supposed to be some type of like two big moments in somebody's life where the, the cocktail party scene, I'm not, I'm still kind of wavering on, but the second time I've, I saw this, I definitely viewed the, um, the grape orgy. I think I'm calling it the right thing. Yes. <laughs> the grape orgy scene as a, a representation of his actual birth. Because before oh. that, be, before we, we get that scene, you know, he's just kind of holed up in his house and he has that the manservant who's constantly like, you know, you shouldn't see these other people. You should invite somebody into your life. And he's like, I'm going to do it when I'm damn good and ready. I'm just going to like try and paint and, you know, do random stuff and uh, be fed tea and sandwiches by my manservant. But when he goes to the grape orgy, like you said, at first he is against it. He seems repulsed by it. He doesn't want to be involved, and even, I think he says the line where he's like, this is, I don't know any of these people, this is not something I'm involved in. And I really started to see this as his birth, because I think, uh, when, when I think about birth at least, you know, there is nothing inherent to an unborn baby that wants to be born. Like, I don't think there's any science backing up where it's like a, a, a baby wants to be born. It's the woman that is giving birth and the rest of the world that's dragging it into creation, into life. And I definitely kind of saw this as where we have this character, Tony, at this point in time, where he doesn't want to go out into the world. He doesn't want to accept this new life that he has. He wants to stay secluded. And then he literally gets pushed by the woman into this this big basket of of uh, grape orgy and, and squished grapes, which is, I think definitely I was like, Oh my God, this is like a representation of the placenta or something. And he gets dredged in it. And then he has to accept it. Like he is literally pushed by the world and the woman to exist now. And I was like, Oh, this is, I was like, that's really cool. I think of this as birth. Compare that though, to the cocktail party scene, just to finish up this thought. And then I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I think that it's like that orgy was his birth. And then we jump forward to the next point in his life where, you know, some time has lapsed, if you think about it as a true life, where he is learning the facts of reality and coming to terms with how to deal with other people. And it's almost like going through puberty and not knowing how to deal with these other people, getting drunk and making a fool of yourself and letting the cat out of the bag, like you said. And that's where I really started to form that idea of 
he didn't learn anything from his first life. He's making those same mistakes that it's it's still difficult to be born and it's still difficult to learn how to handle your new existence. He he doesn't just get that that fountain of youth. You know, it's not a new game plus. You don't get to keep all your items from the first time. You really just start from scratch. No, I think that was very well put. I never even thought of the uh, the grape stomping orgy as uh, his birth. No, that's clever. Um, I like that. The only thing I have to say is that, like, that's the thing. Is that, like, right after that, though, is when he starts to – you think at that point that he's going to start accepting his life because he almost seems to have almost a slight euphoric bliss yes. after that moment. And then we see him getting falling down drunk, and then kind of reality slaps him in the face because at the party, he starts to let the cat out of the bag. Then they hold him down, and he finds out the girlfriend's even part, part of the show. Yeah, part of the company. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's what and that's that's what breaks him, right? And that he wants the third try at it. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, the the end of the movie, I think when he's talking to the founder again, he's really saying, I can like if you give me a, a third if you give me thirds, I've had my seconds, I want thirds at life. And he says, you know, but you have to let me make my choices. And he gets really bogged down in the idea that, you know, the company gave him this manservant, gave him this life where he's surrounded by other reborns, gave him a woman that was a plant for all intents and purposes, and he's like, I didn't get to make my own choices, that's why I failed. And I think that's where it's getting at, you know, I think with the founder's speech at the end of the movie as well about, you know, the whole idea of the company, where he's getting at, you know, do people make the right choices or do we need to guide them to it? And that's kind of the, the conflict at the end of the movie where he doesn't really know or he thinks at least that if he was able to make his own choices through and through that things would be better. But I think the founders saying, well, would they? That's that's an interesting idea of this film is about. And I think this probably goes also ties into the Manchurian candidate is that is the oh, God, the ability to make choices on one's I guess agency. Yeah. I guess does agency equal happiness? Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And I think – or does agency, does agency matter? Yeah, I think that that's a, a big point of this. And I think also um, just to maybe tie it into, like you said, The Manchurian Candidate. I think it was The Manchurian Candidate, some other movie I don't remember the name of, and this. And people I was reading had called this like Frankenheimer's Paranoia Trilogy. Yeah. I, I would that. love to see those other two movies, um, the one I'm forgetting, and then I haven't seen The Manchurian Candidate in so long. Like the last time I saw Manchurian Candidate, it was the – the Demi one. I think it was Demi who did the remake with uh, Denzel Washington. And I would love to see the original again under that new light because I think the first time I saw it, I was young because that's one of my mother's favorite movies. And I wasn't thinking about it on any higher level than, you know, just just what the movie was. Yeah. Like I said, I I don't – that's the thing that's weird about this movie. I think this movie is trying to communicate a lot of stuff. I just don't know what it is. Yeah, I, I agree with you that even though I was starting to fit so many things into my, you know, a theme of, of life and the, the moments, the big moments in life and learning things throughout life, then you get to the end of it where he's talking to the founder. And I'm like, OK, maybe they're they're layering on another thing, because I think the founder's speech is very interesting in the sense where he's like, you know, as a young man, when I started this company, I had such great ideas. I really wanted to make, you know, in the, the simplest of terms, the world a better place. Like I wanted people to find their place in existence, and I thought this was the way to do it. But he reveals that you have so – they have such a high failure rate. And I love the reveal even before that founder speech where 
he goes back and he asks for thirds and they're like, you're just going to stay in this room all day. Like it's a rubber room for until we find a new place for you. And he has that um, conversation with Charlie where they're like, maybe we'll do it this time. And they're all sad and like just being like, yeah, maybe we'll do it, man. And it's just so I guess that's one of the scenes I definitely think on a Monstober level was very disheartening. And I I just was like, this doesn't really fit in with my whole life aspect, but I I couldn't really um, take away from the movie from it. I don't I wasn't really saying I wanted it to fit into my life theme or my life rationalization. I was just kind of on board for the ride, and the movie was throwing different things at me. Yeah, that's the thing because you do have all that stuff because, like you said, the idea of the very end where they're in the rubber room, and you see that earlier on as well. And yeah, and you see Charlie. We don't know it's Charlie in that first time he goes in the rubber room. I thought that was really cool. Unless you knew who F. Murray – was it F. Murray Abraham? I don't uh, – no, I think it's someone else. Um, no, not Murray not, – not, God, God yeah, uh, wrong. Murray uh, Hamilton. Murray Hamilton. Sorry, that's F. Murray Abraham. It's a different actor. Um, <laughs> that would good, old ma- good old mayor from Jaws. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, good lord. And from The Graduate. He was uh, Mr. Robinson. Oh, yeah, that's right. Man, I haven't seen that in forever. Here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> so, so before we get too far, um, I mean, um, I, I'm glad you think uh, when when you said just so because this is of course an audio medium. Uh, when Zach said he liked my interpretation of the uh, the orgy scene as as the birth, I did a little fist pump like Zach's back and I'm making good points. It's about time. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have to say I really liked the the visuals or maybe not the visual well the visuals but along with the the way that that grape orgy scene was edited i really liked some of that um i do i really had to point out that it blew me away we get a shot of like the grape basin with so many naked people in it like like it's it's filled like a public pool on a hot summer day in a cartoon level of of people and there's a few shots of that where the camera's going like in and out and like trying to like glide over their shoulders and i'm just like this is really weird but i like it very interesting um visual for sure yeah this was uh the dp was james wong howe who sat there god he was a legendary uh Mm -hmm. uh dp in hollywood at this time even years prior did you so you said you saw the criterion version right and see senor okay and that's the one that i had as well so i was reading about that apparently the original version of this uh cut out the nudity from the orgy scene and i was like well how are you gonna have an orgy scene without any nudity but exactly but apparently there's a seven minute difference between the two versions and i was like there's no way there's seven minutes of nudity in that scene Yeah, I saw that too because I looked up my copy, and obviously my copy is seven minutes longer. Yeah, it's a hundred and seven minute version. Yeah, I don't know what they cut out in total. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where they found seven minutes of additional footage for this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, until we go dig up a DVD copy from like twenty years ago, <laughs> probably longer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I uh, I definitely um, the the other thing I have to mention about the orgy scene. Um, well, I, I loved the, the discordant drunken sailor music, like the dude playing the recorder poorly. I thought that was fantastic sound.
when when Nora, the the girlfriend who's planted by the company, when she first gets into the grape basin, she starts like splashing the grapes upward. That made me very angry, because that's not going to squish any grapes. That's a waste of grapes. And I know that's not the point of the orgy, but I was like, stop it. Like, don't do that. <laughs> like, come on, you can have an orgy, but you can't waste the grapes. Exactly. I mean, they did have the most grapes in any movie ever, I think. <laughs> but that, that still that stood out to me. I, like, my note is, oh, no, don't splash the grapes upward. They need to be squished. <laughs> I'm sensing a rule when it comes to the Cinematis grape orgy. Oh, oh. <laughs> uh, the first rule is that I will always be the wine queen or the grape queen or whatever she's called. <laughs> the first one who gets naked into the grape basin. <laughs> no, but I, I, I love that scene. I think that's um, that's not the most striking visuals. I think that's something we said we want to talk about with some of the um, the very strange and surreal stuff. But you're, you're right. As you said earlier, that's kind of just a reflection of, I think, in the 60s that that hippie culture, possibly counterculture, you know, praying to yeah. the, the Bacchus, the wine god, and, his, and bathing in his blood and things like that. But it was really cool. I really liked that that scene in total. Um, I think that's the part of the movie where things really started to click for me with what they were getting at, especially when I thought of that birth uh, symbolism of it. Yeah, definitely. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Right on, right on. I guess, uh, uh, do we want to talk about uh, Nora? We don't get a lot of Nora later on. I think we get more of her at the beginning. Her introduction scene, I definitely found, is a little awkward, I think, because she's just sitting there, silent on the beach, and he says hello. She doesn't say anything, but then she catches up to him. And then they're like, you want to go for a walk? And then out of nowhere, she runs into the ocean. And she's like, Ocean, I love you. You're beautiful. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And I definitely thought she was another reborn, and she was having trouble, like, attaching to her new life it definitely was a twist for me that she was a plant and well maybe she was reborn but she was put there by the company to to be his lover his mate type of her his partner in this endeavor well sure i think that's part of the mystery is that it's supposed to be ambiguous it's the idea that she's a plant but the plant can be anybody yeah yeah because she does talk about her in one of her first scenes when they're in the in her house like talking she she is mentioning she doesn't say that she was reborn and went through the same process he did but she is saying something like she gave up on her previous life and ran away and didn't look back and so i think the movie is pointedly doing that to say oh is she saying that as she went through the same process he did and they're going to connect that way and i think that's the point that he's supposed to think that but I, I do have to point out that when she's mentioning, like, the old things in her life that were fancy or special or good, the first thing she mentions is a microwave oven. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, the 60s, that was a big time for microwaves. Exactly. <laughs> that was a luxury item. Yeah, that was funny. I found that very funny. <laughs> you have to realize things have changed a lot in 50 years. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, uh, last uh, – a few series ago now – we talked about Johnny Dangerously, which is a very different movie. It's a comedy. But there's a scene where Danny DeVito's trying to pay off the assistant DA. And he's like, one of the things I'll give you is a microwave oven. And we had that same conversation where it's like, yeah, this was a big deal that apparently you could cook things faster than ever. <laughs> People were afraid of microwaves back in the day. I'm still kind of afraid of my microwave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, that's, a, like, that's the thing about this movie that like I don't think – this movie had I, – I don't know how timeless this is. I think its sure. concepts are timeless, but I think a lot of the the punch of it, like, like things like that, like on top of it too when it comes to uh, even like the casting of Rock Hudson, like 
I don't think people realize now, like if you were to show this to like, oh God, the modern day equivalent of like a film school class, Mm -hmm. I don't think people would realize like the idea of having Rock Hudson cast in this role. Yeah. How just audacious that is. Definitely. That was something that I was reading about. I've known about Rock Hudson um, and his career, you know, marginally throughout the years, but I definitely was reading about that. And it's kind of like shocking just to think that, you know, like you said, I think you put it perfectly that a lot of the punch of this movie is kind of lost. And I think people seeing it today would just be like, yeah, so, you know, he he got a second chance at life. He didn't like it. He wants another chance. Like, what is it? What is there to it? And it's like, there's a lot more with the themes that we've been talking about, but also just the notion of that they didn't uh, like change the character. Like, I love the fact that it's it's Arthur Hamilton and Tony Williams are two different actors. Like, I could definitely see them just being like, well, let's just do makeup for one time period and then not makeup for the other one to really change things up. And I love the fact that they use two different people. And I don't know if anybody would be like, you know, today, recognize that. Because, like I said before, you get things like Face Off, where it's just like, oh, you have Nicolas Cage and John Travolta, and then they just switch roles at, like, the 30-minute mark of the movie. And they're like, yeah, that's what you do. And it's like, I, I think back in the day, it was more of that makeup and stuff. I, I, at least from what I read, it was kind of, you know, stunning in the sense that they use two different actors for the same role. But I don't, I don't, I guess, again, you're right. Well, but yeah, that, that in, in um, kind of parallel to the Rock Hudson thing. I definitely agree with your Rock well, Hudson like, thing as well. But that's the thing, though, is I don't think people realize just that, like, Rock Hudson, like, now everybody knows Rock Hudson is, like, the closeted gay, gay actor who, had, who was one of the first people to die of AIDS, prominent people to die of AIDS. Yep. And that's the thing is that like before all that, when I think he passed away in the mid 80s, it was the idea that like Rock Hudson and Doris Day were like for for a decade were the biggest thing ever. Mm-hmm. Like it was the door, the Rock Hudson and Doris Day movies. And then to cast him in something like this, where it was this like macabre and again, the seedy underbelly behind like under america like i think that's probably make a fantastic double feature with something like blue velvet oh um, the, sure yeah the idea of just like you have like the happiness of america and underneath it is just this like kind of horrible yuckiness to it all and the idea of getting rock hudson for this the idea of having him be the person that that again the schlubby arthur hamilton is reborn into yep and then Rock Hudson being unhappy and him kind of involved in this sort of just like, oh, God, like I, I, I don't even think the phrase playing against type is strong enough here mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because Rock Hudson had never done anything like this. And I think this probably punched a much more bigger feeling to it back in the day than it is now, because like you were saying, if you were to show this to people, it'd just be like, oh, he gets reborn into a younger, more handsome man. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, well, it's not just a younger, more handsome man. Like, yes, that's part of it, though, but he gets reborn into Rock Hudson. Yeah, and I I think it's a bummer as well that if you do explain that to somebody, you know, not to jump too far ahead, but say as like a late night movie, you try and explain that concept to somebody who's not into film or film history the way that we are, they'd just be like, okay, and even if I think if you if you tried to make an analogy today, which I, I don't I can't think of a good one quick enough, so I won't even attempt it, they would just be like, yeah, whatever, you know, I, I've seen that before. I mean, I, I feel like people if you tried to explain this to people, they would just be like, oh, like twins, where you have Arnold and Danny DeVito that are twins, and it's like, no. <laughs> 
But like the only like like the only modern day compare not comparison, but just like example I could give of this. Like if you were to do this today, just to show like I guess someone playing against type would be like if you were to have oh god, I'm trying to think of you'd have oh god, I guess it would be if you were still alive, if Philip Seymour Hoffman was reborn into the body of Kirk Cameron. <laughs> like that would be the equivalent of this. Philip like, Seymour Hoffman be... is a good a good one to pick for the uh, the Arthur Hamilton character, yeah. But like I can't think of another like for, especially in today's society, it's really hard to do. But like I can't think of another actor that's known for being so like kind of straight laced and being so typecast mm-hmm. as just like the good like like the over like and I think probably Kirk Cameron's I got he's nowhere near as handsome as Rock Hudson was. But it was like I can't think of a more appropriate example of someone having that person. It's the it's not just the. Oh God, the superficial element. Yeah, it's also just the, the the thing they bring, like the the persona they bring as an actor to the role. It's kind of like almost like John Wayne. Like John, you you cast John Wayne in something back in the day because he brought that persona with him. Um, we really don't have that with actors anymore. Yeah. Like where an actor's persona is, when you cast a certain actor, you cast not just the the actor but the persona as well. Um, I guess in the past it would have been someone like Robert De Niro or Al Pacino. Sure. Back when they did be kind of become like buffoons and like um, paycheck actors. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of like you don't have that anymore with actors, where you you bring a certain. T- personality a certain actor brings a personality to the role geez yeah that's something i don't think i've ever thought about fully before but you're absolutely right you know with all these you don't really like you said you don't have that personality that that atmosphere of an actor it's just like okay now more people are just like wow they can do this and this and this other thing and you have so many people who do all this different stuff they don't just have this one kind of not note, but what one feeling with them. They, they. It's almost like actors today. I think are the big ones, at least, are seeking out actively not having that tied to their name. I guess, like, it's kind of like what I said last week. It's kind of like what I said with Arlie Ermey or Kevin Spacey, where you cast them because you want a very specific thing from them. Sure. Now, I guess maybe that's. Like, I guess Kevin Spacey is probably the best modern day example of that, where it's like, okay. It's a one note actor, but you're you're casting them because you want that specific performance. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's probably the best example I can think about before we mm. uh, before Kevin Spacey uh, canceled himself. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. <laughs> Good old Kevin Spacey. Yeah. So you know that that's a really interesting idea, and um, I think that you are absolutely right that that is a lot of the the heaviness to this movie that gets lost over time for sure like like you were saying you know it's almost uh so simple of an idea that it can't stand up today that's the thing it requires that level of film history that not most people have yep yep absolutely yeah i don't even know anybody that i could talk to today other than you zach uh, in our age range, I mean, that would know who Rock Hudson is. <laughs> oh God, Rock! I, re- I remember when my mother would tell me about Rock Hudson. She would sit there say things like, "Oh God, he was so handsome. Why do he have to be gay?" It was like, <laughs> "Oh, that's good." <laughs> he was a ha- oh come on, everybody! I, it's kind of like oh God, Rock Hudson's like a modern day example, or I guess a a past example of kind of like like men that are so attractive. You'd be like. How can you not be like, even as like a dude, 
you have to if you're not attracted to it you at least have to admire it sure sure yeah <laughs> i hear you i hear you <laughs> but that's the thing that we really don't have like i guess it's the idea of what a matinee idol yeah yeah exactly i mean i think that's definitely gone out the window today i mean the, the last one i can think of is i've definitely heard some people not a, not to a great extent from what i've read about you know like movie movie stars of the past era but i've definitely heard of some people you know like fawning over chris hemsworth that type of thing but that's not fully that's not across the board like that's not what people think i think 100% of the time it's just the the example that comes to mind from what i've heard in my spheres i guess the i'm trying to think the last time i guess it would be like across the board everybody thought he was that's like i was gonna say dicaprio but that like was more for a specific age range yeah i was i was gonna say either dicaprio or brad pitt i remember that from back in the early brad, 2000s yeah brad pitt yeah brad pitt's probably the last best example um but like george clooney like in your sexiest mm, men mm, alive mm. i think think of your people magazine sexiest like list mel gibson wasn't he one of them yes one year? <laughs> yes yes anti-semitic most handsome that movie with the beaver puppet god he's so good looking (laughs) the beaver is Is that on the spreadsheet the beaver movie it's gotta be it can't no i don't think it is it's not oh man that that might be in your page of something to talk about one day i don't know if it's in a series or anything i feel like i've seen well now that i say now that i mention that it is called the beaver and I think I might be confusing it on the spreadsheet with The Lobster, the Yorgos oh, Lanthimos okay. film. <laughs> you know what the strangest part of the Beaver movie is? I've is never that, like, seen we, it, so... I saw it. I saw it. It's, it's nothing to get excited about okay. um, once the novelty wears off. But, like, that movie has, like... It was Jennifer Lawrence right before she blew up. Because oh. every, everybody's, like... She has a very small role in it. But it's the idea that, like, oh, everyone's like, oh, like, Jennifer Lawrence's, like, first big, like, first movie, like, her last movie before The Hunger Games was uh, Winter's Bone. Because I think she got nominated for an Oscar for that. Okay. And it's like, no, her last, like, major film before The Hunger Games was The Beaver. Because that, mo- that movie has, like, a crazy good cast. Because I think it was um, Jodie Foster who directed it. Mm-hmm. It's Mel Gibson, Jodie Foster, Anton Yelchin, and Jennifer Lawrence. And I'm like, like it's a like an insane cast for that. Like, this is before Jennifer Lawrence blew up, of course. But like, it's a crazy cast. But yeah, the Beaver, and uh, Ray Winstone's the Beaver like voice. Oh, the okay. voice. oh, wow, okay. The Beaver. Where was that in Anton Yelchin's career? Was he? Because I think what his breakout, or I, I know maybe not breakout, but he got a lot of attention from Charlie Bartlett with Robert Downey Jr. I don't know, remember. Oh, God, I don't know if yeah. that was before. I think that was probably before the Beaver. Yeah, it has to be. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, the Beaver was 2011. Okay, okay, yeah, I think Charlie Bartley was mid two thousands, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, it was. Okay, way okay, that. that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm. The Beaver is something I've always wanted to see. It's not interesting though. That's the problem. Yeah, like, I think that's what like, you've told tra- me. What I've heard. The the trailer is literally like you can glean everything. There might be a couple like weird things here or there. Okay, like don't get me wrong, it's not a normal movie by any stretch of the imagination, but like it's it's not like this yuck fest that you would uh, expect it to be. Okay, okay. I, I just, I feel like I'm laughing at myself that I could totally see myself one night sitting down and be like, I'm going to watch The Beaver. And then I watch The Lobster, and like oh. right at the end of The Lobster, I go, wait, where was The Beaver? <laughs> Have you ever seen The Lobster? No, but I know I know about it, the, the premise at least, but I've always wanted to see The Lobster as well. I've seen that, and that's nothing. Again, like, it's weird. But like it's it feels like a movie that's weird for the sake of being weird. Oh, okay, okay. It's trying too hard to be weird, and it's like sure. it's it's being eccentric just to be eccentric. And I'm gotcha. like, 
that's fine, but like it's not for me. Like it's it's just it's it's overcompensates in its premise. Okay, okay. I I've wanted to see it because I know you've told me about You'll it. You'll like it. And, You'll like it probably if I had to guess. Uh, I have seen. I don't. I think it's either the movie he did after the lobster or two movies after after uh, Yorgos Lanthimos, uh, the killing of a sacred deer. I did see that. That's oh, you did see that. How was that? That was all right. I definitely think that um, it was something that. I wasn't really in the right mindset to fully grasp onto. I think I could do something similar to Seconds where I can analyze it in a more intriguing way. Um, it was very – that's one of the movies I would say was a little slower paced than methodically paced. Yeah. I remember the previews for that being like, this looks interesting, but once I saw it was directed by the guy who did The Lobster, I'm like, nah. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> we got, don't we got care. Yorgos Lanthimos. We got the guy who did Manny – Mandy, Panos Cosmatos. Oh, <laughs> Panos Cosmonaut. Yeah, we have Panini Cosmonaut, whatever we called him. Two mo- yes, that was got, two Monstovers ago, yeah. <laughs> yes, we got Denis Villeneuve. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so. to, this, to this day, I never say his name right now. Anytime I see Denis Villeneuve's name, it's not Denis Villeneuve, it's Denis Villeneuve. Well, if you it's, remember, it's, Zach, we have, I don't know if, if you've forgotten our rule on this podcast since you've been away for so long, we can pronounce people's names any way we want, and we will only correct ourselves when they come on this podcast and correct us. Oh, okay. So, Denis Villanueva, get on here. We no, know you listen. Correct your no, name for us. <laughs> Villanueva. Going back to the first Sicario episode, it's Denis Villanueva. I will always call him that now. Well, I, I like calling him Denis Villanueva because it matches up with Nuvi, the Maria Menounos thing before the movies. <laughs> speaking, okay, speaking of Nuvi... She, I don't know if she still does that again. I, I, spoiler alert, folks. Yesterday I saw Tenet again. Um, he went through the turnstile and, and saw it back. I went. I went. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's really funny now that I think about it. Um... <laughs> yeah, I mean, the audience has heard the um, the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode where I do a whole goddamn song and dance about Zach returning, <laughs> and they're like, but "Zach was earlier. here three weeks ago." <laughs> Oh, everything's awful. Um, but yeah, that, they still, it's weird. Nuvi is still a thing, but I don't know if it's Maria Menounos. Maria oh, okay. Menounos now, when I pump my gas, I'm not sure if they have these in Colorado, but they have TV screens now at the gas pump. And she comes on and tells me that like eating cucumbers will help my regularity. <laughs> I'm not joking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, cucumbers aren't bad. <laughs> but like while I'm pumping my gas, I'm like, I look around, I'm like, this has to be the Truman Show, right? Like, this has to be. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Like, I, I, like, is this the future? I'm like, <laughs> is this what they imagined in 1966, what 2020 would look like? You pump gas as like, and the whole time as I'm watching this, I'm like, what is Maria Menounos even famous for? I'm like, who is she? That's a good question. I'm like, like, who is she? It's like Kardashian at least had a big ass in the sex tape. That at least got you famous in the mid 2000s. Wasn't she a host on some? Maybe not entertainment show, but like home video show. I, I might be thinking of a different home video woman show. Rob, isn't that a porno? I, <laughs> I might be thinking of a different woman with a with a Greek last name that I'm confusing her with. Though <laughs> I, it doesn't matter. I don't even know anymore. Twenty twenty. The future is horrible. Go back to the turns. I'm gonna go back to the turnstile again. Um, I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna keep bringing pieces of the algorithm back until eventually the world's blown up, dude. I'm. I'll be um, right there with you. I'll be on the side that wants to uh, destroy the past to also destroy the future. 
<laughs> yes, I'm on board with that. Rob and I can bring pieces of the algorithm back with us. And when we get we get conversations with the Indian arms dealer, could be like the future is mad. That's because we made Maria Menounos a, a, a famous person. It's horrible. Just destroy everything. Okay, I, I have um, to I have to say I did a quick uh, Maria Menounos Google to pull up a Wikipedia page. I have not read any of it yet, but one of the the sections is legitimately titled professional wrestling news really? to me news to fucking me man <laughs> i i didn't the woman's like super petite how is that you, are you sure it's the same person i i think so yeah i mean i can control f for Nuvi. oh yeah it's her yes <laughs> Nuvi's on in wrestling yeah, there's a picture on Wikipedia that says uh, Menounos celebrating her victory at WrestleMania 28 along with tag team partner Kelly Kelly in April 2012. Kelly Kelly, I'm interested in that. <laughs> Becky so, the Farmer's Daughter? Her, yeah, <laughs> she's the modern version of Becky the Farmer's Daughter. Um, I, I do have to say her first film credit is in 2005's Fantastic Four, and the role is Sexy Nurse. Do you know what, folks? I'm not going to say anything. I uh, I am definitely uh, – yeah, I'm trying to see. 2009 to 2012, it says she was herself on The Real World, so maybe that was the host thing I was thinking about. Oh. Um, 2005 to 2011, Access Hollywood. I think that's what I'm thinking uh, of. okay. That's what I'm thinking of. Okay, okay. She got punked. Look at that. <laughs> she got into wrestling after like entertainment, like Hollywood or like yes, ET? at least at least from the Wikipedia, the timeline is she uh, she celebrated her WrestleMania 28 victory in 2012, which was after her time on Access Hollywood. The woman's a scarecrow. This, I... <laughs> you're not wrong. You are I'm not so wrong. Confu- I, I'm so confused right now. This is more baffling than the ending of seconds. Maria Menounos is just blowing our minds right here. <laughs> How do we even get? How is this confident in a conversation about John Frankenheimer's second? We are in uh, true cinematodies form, Zach. That's. It. <laughs> I don't even know. I can't even. Usually, I'm pretty good at tracing our tangents. We, we got to go through one, the turnstile. We have to go through the turnstile again. Okay. Are we blue or red right now? Uh, I think we're red. I think we're still going forward, unless uh, I'm getting turnstile without knowing it. Like I'm putting a dream okay. after a dream without knowing it. Who knows? All right. We need to go deeper, or we need to go backwards. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> so what? Blue is what? Blue is odd. In no, no, red is red odd. is odd. Yeah, blue and, and blue is even. So you have to yes. keep doing it. Okay, like you said, it's kind of, like like tenant logic eventually boils down to um, hitting the pound, uh, hitting that subscribe button, taking this, yeah, <laughs> taking the subscribe button. To the, I can't say so taking that, taking that, taking that like and subscribe button to pound town, an odd number of times. Number of times, yes. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That's how Christopher Nolan just like, like he tries to describe it to the executives, and then like he eventually just has to get like boil it down to. It's like taking the subscribe button to Pound Town. It has to be an odd number of times. <laughs> oh God, I, I'm I'm just gonna I want to continue on this tangent because I don't know if you remember Zach. Do you remember you found that website once where it was like information about celebrities, and I got excited because I found out that Lucy Lou smokes oh. on the website. <laughs> Like, I feel like we need to look at Maria Menounos on there and just for, like, some insight into, like, why the hell is she wrestling after she was a co-host on Access Hollywood? What website was that? I don't know. I can't remember. I'm trying to, like... I I remember that now, but I don't remember the website. I know. That's something we we should never forget, that we Did we link to that in the show notes? I don't know if we put it in the show notes. I feel like 
it was something that we sent you sent to me in the middle of a conversation. Check Facebook. It might be on oh, face- Facebook messages. Yeah. Oh my God. Our Facebook messenger chain is just all links. We never talk to each other. <laughs> it's all fucking links to things. Well, there's elves on our Facebook. Of course. <laughs> oh God. I. I. This is something because I know it's in the spreadsheet that we say in that episode where for our three year anniversary we just have to like dive into that website and about yeah. all our celebrities that we like. But I didn't fucking write down what website it was. It has to be. I must, I must have sent that to you. No yeah, yeah, you definitely. You. It's got to be on Facebook. Okay, I don't know if I'll find it anytime soon. Hey, kids. The website Rob and Zach are trying to think of is Tadler.com. That is T-A-D-D-L-R.com. Okay, that was a great tangent, Zach. <laughs> All right, so seconds, the John Frankenheimer film. It, is there one particular scene that stands? Because one thing we didn't talk about is I know in the pre-show conversation we were talking about the rape the rape series yes and there is a rape that happens in this yeah i'm i'm glad you bring this up because this is something i wanted to ask you about and both of my viewings of this movie when we get the um i guess it's first i thought it was a dream sequence when arthur hamilton falls asleep in the office we get that really weird warped room effect really cool and weird warped room effect where he's basically like I, I couldn't tell in the first time if it was attacking the woman. You know, there's no audio. It is very strangely edited. But then it's revealed that the company, you know, drugged him and filmed him looking like he's in the act of raping a woman. But they say you didn't ravage this woman. It just looks like you did. Oh. And I'm very confused. So, so yeah, I think the second time, my second viewing, I definitely picked up with, like, Mr. Ruby in the office says, like, you didn't – I think he says you didn't ravish her. Which I guess could mean he did have sex with her. It just wasn't very good. I, I don't. I think ravish could be a very subjective term. Um, sure. But I, I took it the second time seeing it as you know he was like we just made it look like you did this bad thing to a woman, and he says to the founder at like at the in the following discussion where he's like why would they do that? Are they blackmailing me? And the founder's like not really blackmail, more of a type of insurance. And I was like I I still don't fully understand that. Oh, you don't. Well, well, no, I don't think so. It's like why – it seems like he, he wants to do this regardless of whether he has this bad thing about his life. So why is that truly necessary I guess is my question. Well, OK. Keep in mind <clears> – <throat> this is also a different time period where sure. I guess infidelity or anything like that or just w- – was not acceptable. Is that it's, it's a way of insurance for the company. So like if one of these guys decides to either get cold feet or buyer's remorse or renege on the deal – they can dangle that over them. Oh, okay. That makes perfect sense. I don't know why I didn't make that connection. I might be bogged down too in the life aspect of it, but no, that makes perfect sense that if he does like let the cat out of the bag and try and reveal what the company's doing, that they can say, well, no, he wanted this, maybe something like he wanted this new life because he committed this horrible act. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that, okay. No, 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 not because of that though, but to say, no, I think it's just straight up blackmail. It's that like, if you try to renege on the deal before we transform, if you try to leave, or if you're able to escape, we're going to ruin your, your life. Okay, okay. Because remember, this is also not like – remember, the idea of having this sort of evidence is not like today where everybody has a camera that can shoot HD in their pocket. Yeah. Like the yeah. idea of having footage of a man ravaging a woman is something that like, oh, like that's something that somebody has proof of. You can't mistake that. It's it, – again, it's a way of just it's, – it's insurance for the company to make sure that a client doesn't – 
try to go against them. Okay, okay. Before they're transformed, because obviously once he's transformed, it doesn't matter. Um, we see what happens if you try to go back on them once you're transformed. Um, but again, yeah, that's that's the one aspect of it. But the other thing too is like we have another scene like that, in that like he try he comes down off the elevator and he first enters there. And then when he tries to leave, there's no buttons on the elevator uh, yes. on the on the outside. Yeah, that was which cool. kind of. Which again, it's the same. It's the same idea for both scenes. It's the idea that there's no going back. It's just going forward, and it's also foreshadowing the idea that you can go. You you can, you you even though he thinks he's going back by having the younger body, the all this stuff, there is no going back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm not sure why I didn't pick up on that, and it confused me a little bit. But no, that is totally believable. Yeah. Now, again, I think that's clever foreshadowing is that you can try doing all you can, but it's just like, again, it goes to your idea of the fountain of youth. It's it's the folly of the fountain of youth is yeah. that there is there is no such thing as uh, salvation from what? What's the opposite of youth? Old age? Yeah. Um, uh, degradation, maybe. I think that's how like I aging guess. is seen is, you know, the, the, the loss of sense of self, of body, things like that. Yeah. There's no salvation from uh, degradation. Yep. So I, I did want to mention um, one of the scenes I, I thoroughly enjoyed for some reason. I, I definitely saw it as kind of surreal. The lead up to that whole kind of, you know, insurance policy, as you've described it, as we've, as we've described it, um, when Mr. Ruby is explaining or just kind of jumping in the explanation of, well, what the company, not what the company does, but what it has to do to prepare Arthur Hamilton for his next life. I just really, really loved when Mr. Ruby was explaining the process of faking Arthur Hamilton's death in a very pointed and complete and matter-of-factly way, but it's intermixed with him going like, are you sure you don't want this chicken? This is good chicken. Can I have the chicken? Like, My name is Ruby. I've been assigned to go over the circumstances of your death with you. What? Oh, I know this seems rather strange to you. That's why I'm here. You probably have a lot of questions. Well, of course, the subject might appear indelicate, but most of our clients are near them. Oh, let me get this straight. I am not a client. Oh, precisely, Mr. Wilson. You are not a client yet. Uh, let me start by explaining the cost factor involved. To begin with, the procedure is a rather complex one. Uh, it seems to be a supper. Oh, the chicken looks delicious. No, thank you. Yes, as I was saying, the cost runs in the neighborhood of $30,000. I know this seems rather high, but in addition to the rather extensive cosmetic renovation by way of plastic surgery for you, CPS has to provide a fresh corpse that perfectly matches uh, your physical dimensions and medical specifications. CPS? Oh, cadaver procurement section. Look, you sure you don't want this chicken? Absolutely sure. Oh, pity. The next step is the carefully planned obliteration of identifiable portions of the cadaver before it is found. Features, dental structure, uh, fingerprints. See, we can't leave anything to chance. No, I, I guess not. Uh, w- would you mind if... Uh... Please. Oh, thank you. Now, there is a, a problem that the circumstances of your death must be simple. Well, a simple accident, strangely enough, is costly. Mr. Wilson, 
the trick lies in obliterating just so much and no more, so that an identification still can be made based on, as I say, general dimensions plus a credible sequence of events, witnesses, etc. Well, the whole thing must be very carefully staged. We guarantee a death of this kind. Mm, excuse me. Delicious. They, they have a wonderful way of baking cheese on it so that it gets very crispy. Now, there are any number of ways you can be found. Excuse me. I mean, your body can be found. The victim of some kind of machinery, uh, an explosion, um, the hunting misadventure. Oh, but I think these are somewhat too gross for you. I had thought perhaps a hotel room fire. That juxtaposition of talking about something so serious that Arthur Hamilton is blown away by, mixed with the commonplace kind of him eating supper, I really loved that. I was so on board for that scene, I thought. Yeah, and again, I think that sort of thing has been borrowed so much from now that, like, that would have been very jarring to audiences in 1960s. See that uh, intentionally jarring, like purposefully so, like upsetting. And now I think that happens so much. The idea of people talking matter of factly about something so grisly, definitely juxtaposed with something so mundane as eating a meal. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely not in a huge way, but when I was watching it, it definitely made me think of the. Um, the dinner scene in Eraserhead, at least in the well, sense of the father. Well, there's a lot well, going on in Eraserhead, don't get me wrong. But with the father... Mr. Ruby even looks like the father, too. Yeah! Like, there is yeah. that sort of facial similarity. We're like, oh, like, the idea of chicken, a man that looks somewhat similar to that. Yeah. But uh, the, the whole sense, like, Mary X runs out of the room crying, and the father's just like, you know, eh, she'll get over it, you know, how was your day at work, Henry? You know, that type of thing. Yeah. Uh, no, like I said, that's like that whole like a lot of this movie. Again, it's there's something weird about this movie where like it has a bunch of pieces. It just like all the appropriate pieces are there. They just don't gel completely. Yeah, and that's the weird thing is like there's just something about this. Like everything seems to be all there, but it just it doesn't gel the way it's supposed to. And that's yeah, the thing. Yeah. And I don't know why why that is. Yeah, I think that goes with what I was saying earlier about how, you know, I was it, it almost seemed like I was trying to force my thoughts or force the movie into my rationalization about the life thing when you know, it would be in a different sense of, you know, it just kind of gelling as it goes forward type of thing. And that's where I I'm, I'm with you where it's like is this really what they're going for or am I just latching onto an idea that they're dangling a thread with and and just continuing on with it? Yeah. I don't. We'll never know. Um, yeah, John John Frankenheimer died a while ago, right? Like we have no. Uh, oh, put it on the list. Seance Monties. There we go. Seance Monties. John Frankenheimer <laughs> in the afterlife right now. He's making the uh, the life and times of Val Kilmer without Val Kilmer. <laughs> That's right. I love that quote. If I if I was doing a biopic on Val Kilmer, I wouldn't even cast Val Kilmer as Val Kilmer. <laughs> love it. Um, I have to say, probably the most like. Jar, not jarring, uh, unsettling scene in this movie for me is probably when we see him with all the bandages on his face. That is exactly the scene I want to talk about. If there was a scene in here that is the most Mon Stober to me, it is that because it's the imagery paired with the sounds that are being made that are just super creepy. In fact, I expect you to be prancing around here like a stud bull. Well, it's going to take a while, so... Uh... 
Try to be patient until we get you ready for the world again. Now, don't do that. You can't talk because we've extracted all your teeth and given you a complete vocal cord resection. Give the tissues time to pull together. But I think that's, like, this is where, the, like, you have that, and this is where we don't get that anymore in movies nowadays. And, it's, and I, can ima- I can only imagine how... Probably startling. Probably startling is probably the best way to describe it. Like you hear, like oh, like we changed all this. You get all this graphic footage of plastic surgery, which at the time I would imagine most people had never seen before. Mm-hmm. This is before the E Network would make that into a reality show you could watch <laughs> numerous times a day, and um, hosted by Marie Menounos. Yeah, and before Nip Tuck, absolutely. Yeah. And that you're looking at this and you see him with a kind of like the deliberate thing of like he has these multiple layers of bandages and gauze like around his head. And all you can't even see his eyes. You just see kind of the shadow where the holes are and where his mouth is. And they peel back these bandages. And underneath that, you have the suspension and tension. and, And you see Rock Hudson. Yep. Like, talk about a complete subvert. Again, it's not as much of a dirty term as it was a couple of years ago, but God, that is a fantastic subversion of expectations. The idea of expecting kind of this like ungodly mess behind these like, these kind of ghoulish looking bandages, and you see one of the most handsome matinee idols of all time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I could not help, in, in at least in my knowledge of you know th- this type of scene. Uh, it definitely made me think of. Uh, the Twilight Zone, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, the big reveal that all the bandages get taken off the woman, and she's beautiful, but everybody else is ugly. And it's very different from the Twilight Zone, this movie, but it's a very similar reveal where you're just like, oh, like nothing went wrong, it seems. And as the doctor says later on at the end, he says to Rock Hudson, he was like, you were my best work. Yep, and I, yes, and that's the thing. It's like I, I think that's a, a major thrill of this, like kind of like a, uh, like, whoa, like, like unexpected. And I think that started part of that oomph is lost because people don't know who Rock Hudson yeah. is. Yeah, like, it that's... takes like what Rock Hudson is first billed in this movie, and it takes like what 35, 40 minutes for him to show up. Exactly. And that's and then, brilliant. And then he's doing physical therapy for the next 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Like that's like that, like especially for an actor with his sort of just, again, baggage. Again, I'm not talking about AIDS and gay baggage. Sure, sure. But at the time, just like the persona. Like, that would be something that a lot of actors would be afraid of. Yeah. To kind of venture outside of their comfort zone like that. And the fact that not just that he did it, but the studio agreed to it. Like, this was a studio release. This wasn't something that was shot in someone's basement somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the thing. Is like, this movie was really, this movie is really audacious. The problem is that it's audacious for a very specific period in time. Yes, yes. Yeah. Like we talked about with the microwave oven with these actors, it is really of its time for sure. And that's the thing, but like I think it it's it's a weird sort of balance, maybe almost like a paradoxical balance that like it works if you understand the context. Yes, but to have the context means you're inherently aware of it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Because like if you know who Rock Hudson is, you'd have to, like if, if someone of our age, you'd have to be aware of this movie on some level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you're aware of this movie, it ruins the surprises throughout. Exactly. You you lose some of that tension for sure. And I, I think that's where, you know, why probably I was gravitating more towards the theme of it and the interpretation where th- this is one of those things I, I've said to you, Zach, and a lot of other people on this podcast. There's a lot of movies that I would love to, 
you know, go back in time and be in the mindset and really get to see it as that new experience. And I think this is one of them, you know? Rob, make a note in the spreadsheet for this. We have to do that as a series one day. Movies that we wish we could have seen at the time of their release. Ah, I like that. I like that. Make, okay. Make a, no- make a note of it, Rob. We're going to get to that at some point. Um, <laughs> I want in the spreadsheet. Zach's been gone for a while, but he still knows I'm the keeper of the spreadsheet. That's good. <laughs> there was something. I was listening to a former episode of ours where I said, Rob, make note of this for our two-year extravaganza, and we didn't talk about it in the two-year extravaganza. Think, yeah, I think I, was I picked really, up I was one really of those flustered. as well. <laughs> I was really flustered about that. Um, the, the spreadsheet's not as uh, extensive as, as we like to think it is. So I, I do want to just um, – talk a little bit more about that the scene not the reveal scene where he is you know taking the bandages off but when he's in the bandages and he's talking to the doctor that's where i was mentioning that there's a lot of creepy noises that he's making because i think you know he's just like grunting or not really grunting but moaning and the doctor gets overtly angry at him which i found to add to the creepiness where like uh, the guy in bandages arthur hamilton in bandages starts to talk and it comes out as you know like the sounds no face makes and spirited away, just like, eh, eh. And the doctor's like, no, don't do that. We've resected your vocal cords and replaced your dental, like, uh, features. And the doctor gets so aggressive with him. I'm like, that, that's a little scary. And I think this movie almost touches on, I definitely got more of the life aspect like I've described, but I think this movie almost touches on some notion of the trust that we put in medical professionals in some Mm. sense. And I thought, like, that scene started to get at that, but it was never really fleshed out any further. That's the thing. This movie was very ahead of its time in that regard, but it also feels hamstrung by just the fact that we know so much now about how things work. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the problem is that, again, audacious but hamstrung by the fact that it wasn't able to get – that we know too much now that's a that's a good point you know i i was definitely reminded in the the later part of the movie where he's like you know he goes back to the company and he wants a new life and he thinks that he can if he gets to make the choices if he does things his way and he just has like these medical professionals give him what he wants that he'll have a better life i was honestly reminded of vanilla sky you know those scenes when tom cruise is yelling at the doctors and he's like I want this done. You're the best people in the business. And I saw some parallels just between, I think, like I said, that trust in the medical profession. And it was interesting, yeah. but not not fully developed in this movie. That's the thing. I think this this has been borrowed from a lot. Like yeah. any sort of – like I think we even talked about it during private parts. It was a lot of these movies that are underground I think get borrowed from a lot. And I think that's the thing. They know they could be kind of pilfered because mm-hmm. – not pill- well, pillage and pilfered in the sense of because they know no one's ever going to find this stuff. Sure, sure. Yeah, you really have to be aware of film history or seek this out to even start to think about Like we do, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I think even kind of like juxtaposing that first medical scene that you mentioned with the bandages to the one, the final kind of moments of the film where we see Rock Hudson kind of strapped to the chair and they put the gag in his mouth. Mm-hmm. And he's just thrashing about. Like that's probably the second most unsettling scene in the film. Definitely. Because like I'm not sure how people know this, but like Rock Hudson was like, what, six foot five? Yeah. And like the like, – he was a big like not like big as in heavy, but like he was a big, well built man. And the idea of him being restrained and just thrashing like that is just so uncomfortable. And you see like the spittle stains mm-hmm. on the gurney and like, oh God, like in this like kind of like the animalistic noises he's making. Again, going back to that thing about the medical professionals, and you're kind of at the mercy of the doctors. It's like, oh, it's the spookiest thing in the world. Like it's just it's so unsettling. I think that's probably like 
going back to, as to why this is a Monstober film, this is scary, but a very different type of scary. It's unsettling scary. Yes, yes. Yeah, the um, like you said, with the uh, the whole doctor's office stuff, that's definitely very unsettling. I think unsettling is a better way to put it. I described it as creepy, but unsettling is is hits the uh, nail on the head. I I'm not too sure. It was something that I like picked up a little bit on in my first viewing, and then I was kind of like taking a note or something, and I forgot to see it in my second viewing. But I'm fairly certain in the scene where Rock Hudson gets you know he gets taken into sur- or he's going to be taken into surgery. He thinks at the end he gets strapped to the the uh, gurney, and the founders like it's so you don't fall out and hurt yourself or whatever. And he's going being wheeled down the hallway, and the the priest or the guy who's the priest, the minister, and the rabbi is talking to him, and. I'm pretty sure when they reach an end of a hallway, they do a 180, and then Rock Hudson is like, wait, what's going on? And I'm like, that would be the scariest goddamn thing in the world to me, that if I'm being wheeled in a hospital, and then they do a 180, it's like, no, why are we going back the way we came? It's it, like I said, that trust in medical professionals where, you know, they might be trying to trick you into something. You, you aren't really ever sure. And that was very unsettling. Like I said, I don't know if it's a true 180. It might be a a 270 and they're making like a, a right turn or a left turn or something. But just that idea is unsettling to me. Well, yeah, it's the idea of making you, you're on a track and you make the right turn. Like yeah. you make a left, turn, not right turn. You make a left turn out of nowhere. Oh no. In fact, you have no, again, it's no agency. I think that's, I think that it's weird. I think that's another theme of this is the, it's the idea that does ha- does agency equal happiness? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And that's the thing is that, like, in the case of Arthur Hamilton, did if he ever felt like he had any sort of control, would he have made better choices? Exactly. And that's the thing. It seems like he doesn't get the chance to figure out because the company is just ready to try again with somebody else. But I think it also comes down to the idea, too, that does does agency even exist? Not just yeah. in this in the universe of this of the world of seconds, but even our own world. Do we have – and I'm not talking about the idea of fate and things like that. I mean just like do we – do any of us truly have agency? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like we, ha- we have bills to pay. We have obligations to family and friends. Do any of us have agency? Or is it just a complex house of cars where it's just all interwoven? Yeah, that's a, that's a timeless question. And I think that's kind – I think if, if there's any reason why this film will last, it's not because of the superficial elements, much like Rock Hudson, the, the Rock Hudson transformation. I think it's going to be the, the themes throughout this because I think there's a Definitely. lot here that to delve, delve into. Like, the, like you were saying, the idea of the fountain of youth, the idea of the tormented soul, the idea of agents, does agency equal happiness? It's all these ideas, I think, is why this film should probably continue to be studied. But I think it's probably not the reasons why it got made. Yeah, no, you're you're definitely right. And I think, you know, when I watch movies like this, and I think something that I've definitely, if our our audience knows, if they've been listening to to Cinemodities while Zach has been gone, I have definitely had to try and, you know, uh, take the role of Zach and think about these in a more analytical way. And it kind of bums me out that so many people, this isn't what they're looking for in certain films. And I watch this older movie, and it's like, no, this is this is what it's about. Like, the story is so simple and superficial that you can latch onto it quickly and understand it. You should be thinking about these movies more. And I think you're right in saying that that's not why movies get made today. It might not have been why movies like this got made back way back when, but it's the thing that makes them last. It's the thing that actually makes them eternal. 
Well, that's exactly, and I think that's the thing. Is like, is I'm trying to think of other movies that came out from 1966. Like, I don't my my film history doesn't. Yeah. I don't have enough enough top of my head. <laughs> but it's the idea that think of all these different like movies, and I can I don't even know what sort of genre. I can I guess it would be called what a psychological thriller. This is probably what this would be labeled as in a conventional sense. Yeah, yeah, um, um, definitely. I think Wikipedia does label it with science fiction because I think at the time this was science sure. fiction, but in in kind of it's perpetual perpetual sense that probably psychological thriller is the best way to put it and and you know i think that's the um the the superstructure of identity horror like we were saying earlier yeah identity horror being more of a specific subset yeah, yeah. Uh, of anything um because that's the thing is that like not like obviously people are still making what's the word movie not the, but there are still more there are movies like this being made but not specifically like this but just Movies that are supposed to be provocative, mm-hmm. but when you like, you look at I guess I just typed in psychological thriller into Google, and like these are the movies you get. Okay, <laughs> there's a Neil Breen movie in here. Oh, <laughs> That's funny. That's really funny. <laughs> Double Down, Wicked World, uh, after last season. <laughs> I can't even tell what movie it is because it's just his face. It's like it doesn't even tell you what movie it is. I think that's every one of his movies. <laughs> but again, like I, I guess you have things like Donnie Darko, sure, Ten, Ten Cloverfield Lane. Oh, okay. Um, misery. Uh, what else did they have? <laughs> Ex Machina. Oh god. <laughs> yeah, that's not psychological. That, that, that movie could not be farther from psychological. <laughs> it's it's not. Cape Fear. What about um the one that comes to mind is uh if you have more to list definitely but like um the one one I saw recently. From I think also last year, if I remember correctly, the lighthouse with uh, Pattinson yeah, and Willem Dafoe. It's, fu- it's funny that's on here. Yeah, that was on here. highly psychological, and that was something where you know I was definitely really drawn into the the themes of that movie and the the two different psychological extremes that the two characters represent. Would Enemy, directed by Denis Villeneuve, would that count as oh, a psychological thriller? Yes, definitely. God, I love that movie. <laughs> But that's what I mean, though, is that, like, Enemy is one of those movies that no one's going to – not that no one's going to remember, but it's going to get overshadowed by Blade Runner 2049. Absolutely. It's going to be overshadowed by Arrival, uh, stuff like that. That's what makes me angry. I'm going to do – I'm going to do a quick – a tight one, not even a tight five, a tight one to remind everybody because Zach and I haven't talked about in a while. But I'll remind everyone. Enemy is amazing. Enemy is a deep, like, psychological thriller that really makes you think, and it has some, like, really weird aspects to it. Arrival is one of the dumbest movies in existence. Okay, that's my time. And, get, and guess which one made more money? Yeah. Goddamn Arrival. That fucking beginning where they're like, we should send it prime numbers. We should send it a pattern to see if it can recognize it. Nope, you're stupid. We need to teach it pronouns first. Fuck you. Hate that movie. Hate that movie so much. Wait, Goddamn that, Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> That's wait, how we got on Maria Munoz. Because I said newbie. That's it. Full circle. <laughs> Full circle. Um, we figured it out. Would Sicario be count? It's like the first one count as a psychological thriller. Well, maybe. Or is that just? Or is that just a thriller? I think that's a thriller first, and you get the psychological aspects only in Emily Blunt's character dealing with everything going on. Yeah, and and how you know I'm thinking of the last scene in Sicario where he's like, "You have to sign this, or I'm going to kill you," type of thing. Like the really the culmination of her having to sell her soul. Exactly. Live. That's the only. I think that's like a very small psychological aspect to it. All right, just curious is all. Because um, that's not a movie that didn't really make a lot of money. Yeah, um, yeah. 
Um, but no, I think that's the thing about seconds is that like, it's weird that seconds has never really gotten the sort of attention it deserves. Mm -hmm. I I don't know if any of the rock Hudson, because I think rock Hudson, not the problem, but like now you talk about rock Hudson, the first thing that comes up is the the AIDS thing. Definitely. That, that's the thing that kind of sucked all the air out of his career. And I know he was, again, Matt, he did a lot of matinee idol fluff. But you would think that'd be all the more reason why a film like this would resonate now. Like this would be something that people would discover. Like one of those films that just one of these stupid podcasts has done that's sponsored by like Entertainment Weekly mm-hmm. would would dig up and it would just all of a sudden get like inflated popularity for a weekend. That's the thing. I'm pretty sure this showed up on Turner Classic Movie Underground one night. I'm okay. pretty sure this did show up. So it does have again, – again, it got a Criterion release years ago. So it does have a following. But it's just it, – it doesn't seem to get any sort of proper attention. And maybe it's because – I guess you know, I think a lot of people see this as mundane now because like it's not science – like you were saying, it's not science fiction anymore. Yeah. I would, I would, I would be 100 percent comfortable in saying that everything that transpires in this movie – has happened in the real world at least by now and is currently still going on. A hundred percent. There's a company out there that if you hire them the money, they'll make you disappear. They'll find some homeless person, rip your teeth out of your mouth, stick them in a homeless man and let you be reborn as someone younger and restart your life. Mm-hmm. I do not doubt that it does. If it still doesn't exist now, it existed at some point before. Um, it's probably what Jeffrey Epstein is doing right now, <laughs> but that's like a hundred percent. Like this is not science fiction. Yeah. And I wonder if that sort of just like, layer of it not being there anymore has contributed to its lack of substance in film culture yeah i i have to agree you know even though i said it before um and it was kind of the ones that i i thought of of being influenced by this movie a little more jokingly like i feel like if i described this movie to someone and i said oh you know this guy goes through plastic surgery to change his look they fake his death he's a new person people would be like Face off. I love that movie. There's guns. There's actions. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> but that's the thing, though, is that, like, they have a very similar – both movies have a very similar plot device, but they're incredibly different. Absolutely, yeah. Um, like, this movie is actually intriguing and makes you think where Face Off is a slog for two and a half hours. <laughs> face Off is fine. I hate Face Off. I I really hate that movie. I know you do, but it's fine. It's, like, that's a problem that, like, it's it's nothing to get, I know you hate it, but I don't think it's anything to get upset over. Okay, There's more, there's more egregious things to get upset over, like Dr. Sleep. Well, well, that, that is, that is true right there. (laughs) That's what I mean. Hey, Rob, we could do a three-hour cut of uh, Dr. Sleep for oh months over. Oh my god, oh my god. Quickly, I don't, I think I told you this on, like, a phone call we had once, but what like one of my buddies that I, after we saw Doctor Sleep, I like went. I think maybe like a week after, a month after something. I was in Pittsburgh hanging out with people, and I was like, "This is the worst movie in existence. Like, this is terrible. I hate everything about it. It shouldn't exist. All that stuff." And then like months later, he's like, "I saw it, and I actually did, I didn't hate it. Like, I actually kind of liked it. And I watched the three hour cut. You should watch the three hour cut." And I was like, "Oh my god, I will fucking go back and watch like you know Iron Man two or Thor: The Dark World at gunpoint before I fucking <laughs> watch the three hour cut of Doctor." sleep oh my god that movie that movie still makes me angry think did, did we ever talk about i don't know maybe maybe it's something that we talked about at some point maybe last week but like did we ever did i mention that like there's like people rallying behind dr sleep now yeah i don't think it was on mike i think you mentioned it to me and 
I, uh, that's I think insane. that's that's it's where insane. I brought up the fact how everybody says that the the Almond's office scene is like a masterpiece of cinema and homage. And I like I said, it's not why are we wrong, Zach? It's why is everybody else wrong? Else I wrong. steadfastly yep. stand that that is one of the worst things in cinema is the Almond's office scene in Doctor Sleep. <laughs> Hate it. <laughs> I have no idea why people people like. Thank God, Doctor Sleep bombed. Like I guess, like as much as, <laughs> even, as, much even as, with us seeing it on early access, thank God it bombed. Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing is that like, I, even though I'm mad, that, like things like Avengers Endgame like suck the air out of Hollywood. It's the idea that like Avengers Endgame like it's it's not horrible. Like it's like it's over the top, but at the end of the day, it's Hollywood being a slave to itself that. Everything else has to follow that model. The thing about like Avengers Endgame is bloated and over the top, but at least it's not evil. It sure. wasn't created to destroy a cinema classic. Yeah, there, there's no um, there's no Stephen King analog behind the scenes of Endgame going, "Honey, this movie called me an asshole." <laughs> uh, still, the, that that has got to be like a, that's still. I know Zach and I agree that's like a top tier cinematities joke. That's in the in the pantheon oh. of cinematities jokes. Oh, but, it is. Oh, it's phenomenal. But you're that absolutely right. That I think that's what people don't understand or the people who really get into Dr. Sleep is that it's made to almost supplant the original Shining. And they don't understand that it's made from this place of negativity. It's probably I, – God, I, I think I know we talked about it last year, but I honestly can't think of another uh, blockbuster film that was made with malice. That yeah, only yeah. exists it, – it only exists in order to try to overwrite something. Do you do you, I don't know if you listened to it recently, but do you remember last Monstober we did uh, the episode on The Shining in Room Two Thirty Seven? Yes, it's, the it's four a, hour episode. It's a very long episode. Yes, I'm glad you remember that. But then the following week we do Halloween Three: Season of the Witch, and we start make it stop, turn it off, turn it off. <laughs> but we make the joke at the start of that episode where I go, Zach, do you have another hour on The Shining that you forgot about? <laughs> <laughs> and it was a joke then, but hey, folks, a year later for this Monstover, we're back to The Shining and Dr. Sleep. <laughs> folks, it will never stop me talking about The Shining. I, I wouldn't be surprised at some point I make my own version of Room 237. It's about Dr. Sleep, about like, like yeah. the conspiracy theories about why Stephen King made a movie, wrote a book just so it could be adapted into a film in order to destroy the Stanley Kubrick version. Yep, yep. I do that. I make that movie. It's like four the the sequel the actual book sequel is what forty years after the original like yep. Yep. that's not something he was sitting on that's something that he was like it's my time to shine Kubrick's been dead he got killed by the Illuminati in he got 99. killed by the Illuminati for for letting their sex uh, their sex parties get out there yeah what's the um oh god I'll edit this out to make it sound dun, clean but what's the dun, password dun, in Eyes dun. Wide Shut. Fidu- Fidelio. Fidelio. I was about to say Fiducio, and I'm like, no, that's too money related. Fidelio, yes, that's it. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. Kubrick said Fidelio to too many people and got killed for it. <laughs> what he should have said was Tenet and interlace his fingers together. Mm, I thought you were going to say what he should have said is, there's something we need to do. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen the teaser trailer for Eyes Wide Shut? I don't think so. Where it's like just like random shots of the movie, and it's with the the song. They did a very bad, bad thing. Oh, okay, like, yeah. I don't know if I maybe if I've seen it, I don't remember it. Oh, it's a. Uh, I remember seeing that preview like on like an old VHS tape back in the day, and it's such a it's such a unique teaser trailer. It's just like it's just random shots of the movie, and 
I, it, it, I don't want to talk about Christopher Nolan and Stanley Kubrick <laughs> in the second episode. But after rewatching Tenant again, I kind of feel like Christopher Nolan's probably, at least in a studio business perspective, probably the modern day equivalent of Stanley Kubrick. Mm. He works within the studio system, one studio, pretty much can do whatever he wants, regardless of critical reception and box office take. And he's more or less left alone because of the clout yeah. he's 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 done. Yeah, yeah. The only difference is that Kubrick never had movies as successful as yeah. um. Well, maybe he did. Two thousand one was really successful. Sure, but I mean, isn't wasn't that really it? Yeah, or I'm trying to think of all of Kubrick's movies. Like, I don't know how much money Doctor Strange Love made. Oh, that's a good that's a good question. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Um, the problem is that like it's hard to gauge stuff back then by that. Like it's like because mm-hmm, it's just like you have to like mm-hmm. factor inflation, but there was also like multiple runs of something. Yeah, um, yep. and stuff like it. It's really hard to equate like box office success like prior to like God, like the mid '80s. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we can't forget about the um, uh, financially it broke the universe. Barry Lyndon. That movie made so much money. <laughs> It made all the money. It made, it made all the money. It literally changed the global economy. <laughs> I you were gonna say, for a second there, I thought you were going to say Lolita. Oh, that that would have been good. But I, uh, Barry Lyndon is always the one I go to for how. I think that's the movie nobody wants to see or remember. <laughs> I, I have, I've only watched that movie once like seven and a half years ago, and I really need to rewatch that. I, I still really haven't don't... seen it, so. It's good. It's just – long it's it's not it's it's a well-made movie it's a stand it's a goddamn stanley kubrick movie there's yeah. no such thing as a bad kubrick film but uh yeah it's a. Uh, so tune in next week we're gonna do a double feature of, of lolita and cuties so that's where i'm going <laughs> i was thinking about that that would be a really interesting <laughs> double feature that would be really interesting i i think that if zach does more research and because i think before recording we talked about how i have some more knowledge of cuties than zach does if, Zach, if you do some research into cuties, this might fall into the category of the R. Kelly documentary where we go, maybe we shouldn't do this. <laughs> oh, God. Well, what other movies would be in that series? What? Kid? Do you remember the movie Kids written by, uh, oh, God, uh, oh, God, I almost said pedophile director, man. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, God, what's his name? Uh, Harmony Corrine. Oh, sure. No, I've never seen it, but I've heard about it. Kids, kids is a weird movie. Like that's another like really weird movie. Okay. Um, for different reasons than Seconds is a, is a weird movie. Um, that'd be a good one to be put in that series. Lolita, mm. Cuties, uh, Kids. I'm trying to think what the fourth movie would be in that. Would 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 uh, would Re- no Requiem for a Dream? There's really nothing like that. Is there any, how much sexual stuff is in Requiem for a Dream? Um, uh, there's a good bit, but it's not in the same vein as I think those these other movies we're talking. Oh, about. Sorry. It's, yeah. it's more it's more of the sex is almost a secondary thing in the search for heroin in that movie or drugs oh, in general. Yeah, I guess I'm about to work on that. We have we have, we introduced a lot of series God. in this episode. The I know spreadsheets exactly. gonna, the spreadsheets gonna be on fire this week. There's there's just so much that like Zach's come back and we're talking about the uh, the, the the sexualizing little girl series, the rape series. <laughs> hey, 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 sexualizing minors, not little girl. You're you're making that's it too true. specific. That's, that's true. how okay, one, yeah, that's yeah. how one gets charges pressed. Yes, that's it. how I see cuties. I think that's why I'm 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 just harping on that, but. Basically, Zach has come back and he's throwing me these ideas and I'm sitting here going, no, 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 and running away. <laughs> Zach's high on his hiatus. He's like, let's do all these weird ass things. And I'm like, Zach, I just want to talk about Ernest Scared Stupid. It's, it's dumb. <laughs> it's fun. And you're like, here's another rape movie, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> 
remember, I don't want to know, but in the pre-show recording, there was a thing of, I told Rob, look up, I want you to find, I spit on your grave. And I said, no, find last house on the left instead. <laughs> We're not going to like this who... movie, but there's things to talk about. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> the roles have reversed. It's kind of like what happened with America's political parties, where we kind of switched ideals over my hiatus. It's like now Rob is the Zach and Zach is the Rob. We're like, I'm the one with the really crazy out there idea for series. <laughs> and Rob's like, Zach. Zach, you gotta make this palatable for the audience. We have a Patreon now. We can't make this too off the rails. <laughs> oh God, oh God, I love it. I love it absolutely. Good tangent. We're we're back in form, Zach. This is, I mean, your second, third, fourth. Who knows? Time vortex turnstile. <laughs> who knows? Tech. Te- <laughs> but uh, See, folks, yeah, I, I ne- technically I never left cinematis. I just went through a different turnstile, and I will show up in those other episodes, but in other times. Okay, I will have a breathing mask on during those. Yes, recordings. I thought you were honestly about to say the Dave Chappelle quote: "I never left work. I'm just three years <laughs> late." <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, so, so uh, I think I had. Um, if we're done with our tangent, unless we want to do another. 50 minutes on Maria Menounos. I I did have, I think, two little bit of, just little things related to uh, seconds that I wanted to touch on. One's a little tangential, but one, I'll start with the one in the movie, if that's okay with you, Zach. Sure. Okay. It it doesn't, I was trying to think of how it would relate to snacks, but I couldn't really think of anything anything good, or at least the way I want to talk about it now is different from the snack aspects of this movie, so I'll bring it up here before we get to our questions. Um, When... Arthur Hamilton, you know, he he's told to go to a certain address, I think, what, 34 Lafayette Street, to get his – or see the company for the first time before we really know what's going on. He shows up at the laundromat, and they tell him to go somewhere else, and it ends up being this kind of meat production facility. And on the truck that he rides to get to, like, the actual company offices, the back of the truck for the meat facility says, another load from Honest Arnie, the used cow dealer. Yep. Do you have any insight on what a used cow is? Are there unused cows? I was very confused by that wording. Yeah, I I picked up on that too, and I found that amusing. I think it's, again, another hint at foreshadowing. I think it's meant there to be, like, used. I I think it's foreshadowing. I think the whole idea of having him go through a meat plant, I think, again, foreshadowing that, that all these people that go into this thing are just kind of like cattle going into the slaughter that makes perfect sense i i'm kind of disappointed in myself now that you say that that i was so enthralled with the, I, with so the question I. of what so, is a used cow <laughs> that's that's exactly what went through my head while rewatching it and then i thought about it and it's just like again if this was made nowadays i would definitely be looking at it like under that lens trying to be like oh like someone's a smart ass and thinks they're trying to be funny like mm-hmm. what does this mean but looking at it under the context of someone making this probably in the mid 60s it's like oh it's meant as foreshadowing that i i really like that as you bring that up in terms of this movie and what we've been talking about you know the um especially the ending when the founder really describes that you know these bodies that don't have the destination as you described it are just resources for the company and that does make them i guess a used cow to some extent yep okay okay that that is pretty neat um i i, I can't read it right now because it's actually pretty long maybe i'll put in the show notes if anybody's interested but i found an article on tsln.com which stands for tri-state livestock news called marketing used cows 
So apparently this is a term in the livestock industry, which makes sense, but mm. I think it works in the movie better as the um, the the foreshadowing, which is a really really neat inch, uh, idea. Just a, just a quick quote I want to read from this. In both instances, there is a marketing decision on the verge of being made. The cows in both situations are not in their peak condition, and the owner doesn't want to have to run her any longer with no calf pending to show as a return on that investment. So this is like an in-depth article about what a used cow is, and I'll have to check this out later. <laughs> Probably link to it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. And um, so maybe that a used cow is one that, you know, is is created – well, created. That's a weird way to talk about a cow. Um, is – farmed for birthing and then turned into meat where some cows are just farmed for being turned into meat if that makes sense maybe what is a i was so enthralled by that idea that's why i'm bringing it up here because i don't know if i have a good snack relating to that because i was like what's a what's a used cow are there unused cows and it was just i was i was enthralled by that idea The second thing that I wanted to bring up, which is a little more tangential, um, as I do, uh, I don't. I think um, I was doing it a little bit when Zach first, you know, uh, stepped away from Cinemodities or went through the turnstile in the Cinemodities restaurant. I started looking a lot into the IMDb trivia. I don't. I don't hark on it a lot because I know that there's not a lot of um, truth to some of those things. But every once in a while, an IMDb is this tri- a Beach Boys thing? No, I I wasn't really going to talk about the Beach Boys thing because I found a lot of conflicting reports about that. And Brian Wilson himself deserves his own episode because I could talk for years about <laughs> Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. And I still, to this day, I don't remember exactly where it came up, but there is a, a an episode of Cinemodities where Zach and I are talking about the Beatles. I'm talking about the Beatles, and then Zach is like, "Oh, like the Beach Boys," and. I was like, no, we're talking about the Beatles. And you say six of one, half dozen of the other. And I was like, we could have a total argument about that. So I'm putting that aside. The Beach Boys thing is not here. But one of the IMDb trivia pieces that I found really interesting was that apparently for this movie, uh, Seconds, the French censorship certificate was negative 13. And I went, what the fuck? Negative numbers? And I went down a deep rabbit hole last night. Of just how do different countries rate their movies, and okay. I won't spend a lot of time on that. I I spent a lot of time like looking at the at Wikipedia pages and articles about you know the differences, how some countries have restrictions, how some countries have guidelines, and all the different ways that they um, purvey them. But I, I was kind of surprised to see that France apparently to this day they use negative numbers in their ratings. So if this movie was a negative thirteen. It meant that 13 was the minimum age you needed to be to see this movie, which is believable. Uh, I think that's that's a lot sure. of, you know, like PG-13 in America. That's the same idea. But PG-13, of course, is more of a guidance than a restriction, where I think R has some restriction to it, where you need a parent or mm-hmm. someone older there. But I, I do have to – I just wanted to bring up that I went down the rabbit hole of something I had never learned about before. Like I've been aware of, but I've never thought about um, explicitly was ratings in other countries. And I wanted to bring up that while France has negative numbers, which is crazy to me, like just use 13, don't use negative 13, because the UK does that. They use 13, 15, and 18, I think. Apparently the most, from what I found, Belgium has like a shitload of levels. There's, there's no restriction 
or I think they're all guidelines. So there's like there's no guidelines. Anybody can see this movie. There's you have to be at least six. You have to be at least nine. You have to be at least twelve. You have to be at least fourteen. You have to be at least sixteen. You have to be at least eighteen. They have that many ratings on their movies, and I find the granularity of that rating system to be absolutely bonkers. That is way too fine of a granularity. Like, what the hell is the difference between a 14 and a 16-year-old? And I couldn't, I didn't look into any movies that fit these things in Belgium, but I saw this and I was like, oh my god, that's so many levels to movie ratings. I cannot imagine being on the board of people that picks ratings, however they do it in Belgium, and you're like, no, 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 this shouldn't be 16, this should be 14. Well, I think this should be 12. No, maybe this should be 18. Like, the two-year difference is bonkers to me, Zach. But I think that's at least fair, so it makes certain movies available to, like, different age groups. Like, don't get me wrong, it seems a little, like, excessive. Like, I'm not going to yeah, argue that. Yeah. But at the same time, though, is that, like, think about it. It's like, movies, there's some movies in America that clearly, well, nothing is taboo anymore in this country. But it's the idea that, like, okay, R versus PG-13, yes, it's only a four-year four age difference, but at least it would allow people into the movies. Again, I, I think ratings now are almost... There's no point to them because everything is through streaming now, yep. and you can watch horrible stuff. Never mind you have the internet at your fingertips. Yep. It is so um, easy to click on one account rather than the kid's account. Absolutely. Sure, and that's the thing where maybe back – probably 15 years ago and earlier, it probably was much more beneficial than it is now. But no, I've got no problem with it. Okay. No, that that's a good point that it does provide – the granularity, while I think – well, we both think is excessive, it does provide a, a guideline if somebody is looking for it. And yeah. I would rather a fine guideline than a coarse guideline for sure. True, true. Okay. I, I think uh, just to finish up, um, nothing really full to talk about, just some – well, I think one now that I look at my notes – the the last thing I had to about, say about seconds is that, of course, in the beginning with Arthur Hamilton, we get to see that him and his wife, Emily, I believe, um, they have separate beds for husband and wife. Just the goddamn way it should be. <laughs> <laughs> damn straight. Yeah, <laughs> son. Because I'm not saying this in terms of, like, a sexual nature or a a religious or whatever connotation you might have with husband and wife sleeping in the same bed. But, oh, my God, Rob is one of those people I hate sleeping with anybody else. Like, not, I'm not talking about, like, sex. I'm talking about, like, actually trying to sleep next to another human being. Never. Fucking terrible. Like, I want to be alone when I sleep. So separate beds are the way it should be. We, let's bring that back. The more you know, folks, the more you know. The great orgy's okay if you're trying to fill up, like, a public swimming pool in a hot summer's day, like I said before. That's fine. <laughs> but if you're trying to sleep and other people are trying to hang on you and make you hot as shit, fuck that. <laughs> the more you know. So, Zach, did you have any final thoughts on scenes or anything from Seconds? No, I think we delved into everything. I think there's there's a lot more to this movie than meets the eye. Yes. Um, at the end of the day, I think this is more of a – the film is ultimately a discussion about, I think, what I said earlier, the idea of a tortured soul and is there any solace for someone who's perpetually unhappy. Definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's a really thought-provoking movie, and I guess we'll answer that as we get into our questions with Cinemodities and Late Night. Um, but uh, everybody, tune in next week. Zach and I are going to watch – uh, WrestleMania 28, where Maria Menounos and Kelly Kelly win and discuss that. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so, I, I can't wait to read that Wikipedia article after this. So, so many questions. Very, very many questions. Maria, we have to mispronounce her name to get her on the show, right? Maria Menounos, do you want to come on and talk to us about your wrestling career? Menounos. 
Manunu, Maria Manunu, Maria Manunueve. <laughs> so, Beautiful with that sucks. being said, Zach, uh, would you, would you like to start since you are the uh, the Monstober holder uh, with Cinemodities and Late Night? Sure, uh, Cinemati, yes. Um, late Night, Late Night. I'm gonna say no because I've put this on at night before and I've fallen asleep through it. I think after when you have the part of just a uh, Rock Hudson moping around, it slows down a little too much, and I think I don't th- I don't think it works as a late night movie. I think maybe with the right audience, maybe mm, okay. But um, you you need an engaged audience. I'm gonna put that obviously like any sort of late night viewing, you always want a late night. I'm sorry, you always want an engaged audience. Yes, but that's uh, certain movies definitely know how to ignite an audience. This one does not. You need someone who kind of wants to watch it. You can't just throw this on. You have to find someone that you know that would appreciate it before. I think this is a different type of movie than Know Your Audience. I think this is a uh, very much a uh, you have to know who's that they're going to like it to some degree. Otherwise, it's a no from me, dog. Okay, okay. I, I guess I'll I'll start there, and I do kind of want to echo your sentiment on Late Night where – uh, immediately, from my perspective, I think this is exactly the type of movie that would get um, a good discussion as a late-night movie, but in the sense that you need to be aware of who you're showing it to. Because, of course, we have a lot of barriers to entry of the modern age, the the pacing of it, the Jesus, the black-and-white aspect. I think that that's very unfortunate, but that's something we have to talk about where – you know, I could be talking to some of my best friends that I consider, you know, some very smart people, and they will tune out immediately because it's black and white because they're goobers. Um, but I, I think that the the know your audience aspect, like you said, Zach, is the the people that you're showing this to, they need to know what to expect before they go into it. Because if you just throw them this as like an intellectual movie, they might be trying to grasp onto the intriguing or discussion-based aspects before they really come up in the movie because I don't think we really get to any hardcore discussion as our discussion is shown until really the the company is revealed. Everything else before then is just kind of like, you know, we're seeing this dude live through his life. He's kind of unhappy. We don't really know what's going on yet. Um, he's getting the weird phone call from Charlie and revealing that Charlie is Charlie with like the trophy and the um, Fidelis Eternus and things like that. But it does take some time to really get into it. So, so I think I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you, Zach, that it is a a little more restricted version of Know Your Audience. But there are people that I think this could work for, especially if you uh, Ludovico technique them and uh, make damn them straight watch this. The, oh, the the ideal cinematis late night viewing experience. Yes, the yes. Ludovico technique. <laughs> but now, where where I I am kind of split with you is I was actually. Uh, very much in the camp of no for this being a cinemodity. I think you said it very well earlier on that this is a weird movie, but the W is lowercase. I think this yes. is a very interesting movie, but I don't think there's enough odd about it for it to really fit the bill of cinemodities. It's very well done overall, and, and I think that you know it, it lends itself to this discussion and to this strangeness, this off, uh, sometimes macabre or creepy or unsettling, like we said, visuals. But I, I didn't know. I, I wasn't thinking that it fit the bill for cinemodity um, in that sense. I think that it being older and unique for its time, as we've described, maybe not unique, but, you know, uh, the science fiction for its time is what I was getting at. It doesn't do enough for me to put it in the yes category. So I'm going to go with no for cinemodities. Interesting. That's fair. I'm not. I'm not going to push back on that. 
Zach's like, I can edit the spreadsheet too, Rob. <laughs> so I think then that brings us to snacks and the restaurant. The uh, the favorite part of the episodes is everybody skips the first two hours and just listens to this, Zach. Nothing's changed. I, I think the, the first one I want to go with, uh, because I think there's one that we're going to have to discuss, the, uh, the, the grape orgy we'll have to kind of refine between the two of us because I think we both have that. Of course. But really kind of in conjunction with the grape orgy, I really liked that in this movie, as they're like going to the grape orgy, we get to see that shot of a donkey carrying like a giant saddle full of grapes. Oh, yeah. And I would love to just have a donkey carrying a giant saddle full of grapes that just walks around the restaurant and people can just take some as they please, like peanuts at a bar or something along those lines. Sure. So we, just, we just have a donkey with millions of grapes on its back as like the grape donkey. <laughs> the grape donkey. Okay. I like that. And I think, you know, because I don't think we have anything along the lines of like peanuts or maybe there's certain things at the table. Um, I think, Zach, while you were away, we did introduce that at every table, like there's a salt shaker, a pepper shaker, there's room temperature jelly at every table, stuff like that. We just need what? some uh, some grapes running around, you know? The, the grape grapes. donkey. <laughs> grape donkey, okay. I like it. I do. It's kind of it's like the condiment train. Yeah, and we can only hope that a customer annoys the uh, grape donkey and it just kicks him in the face. <laughs> When Nelson Delarosa is using the bathroom, so there's always somebody getting punched somehow in the restaurant. Yes, yes. There's always there's always physical violence on the customers from a a character or an animal walking around the <laughs> restaurant, and that's a cinemodity's guarantee. Hey. <laughs> so that was my first one. Um, I guess before we get to the grape orgy, what else did do you have? Anything else? I don't know. This is like other than the chicken. This isn't really a snack heavy movie. Like there's alcohol, but like we've made sure that's featured predominantly in the restaurant definitely definitely i'm trying to think it's really nothing else like even like like i don't know the idea that maybe we can like i don't know the thing of like you were saying about like the secondhand cows or something <laughs> maybe maybe there's something like that maybe we can give we can, i don't know Use secondhand human flesh meat. yeah i don't know there's, there's something like that though but i feel like that's too low-hanging of fruit mm. the two others that i had before we get to the grape orgy one was just something to have in the restaurant because i think it's uh, an addition as we need it. When I was mentioning before that um, Arthur Hamilton goes to the laundromat because he, that's the address he was told to go to, we see the dude using like the old school giant steam press, like the standing steam press. Oh, sure. We should have one of those to launder our employees' jizzles, among other things. <laughs> A steam press with a jizzle? Yeah, because. Uh, I don't think can afford that, Rob. Uh, <laughs> because I couldn't remember if we. When we when we send our dishes out to the car wash down the street to be cleaned, were we also sending our laundry to the car wash and just lumping it all together? So I was thinking kind of we could have a giant steam press where someone's like, my jizzle's full, I guess, and, and we would just steam it. <laughs> I like that. A jizzle isn't dirty. It's full. It's full. Yeah, I, I don't know how to describe a jizzle otherwise because it is like absorbent material, so. Yeah. But, but I love just seeing the visual of that old school giant steam press, like all that steam coming up on that dude every time he pressed it down. And I was like, yeah, we got to get that involved somehow. The other one that I thought of is more of a a menu item, but also kind of an experience. In the first scene when Nora and Tony are talking, I think in Nora's house, and you know, like we mentioned before, she's describing how she ran away from her past life. We don't know if she's reborn or not. There is a quick line where... 
she says something like, let me read your tea leaves because they're drinking tea. Mm -hmm. So I thought we would do tea leaf readings for customers in the restaurant that order tea. But here's the gimmick. We always use tea bags instead of loose leaves. So there's (sighs) never any leaves in the bottom of the cup. But when our waitstaff or our fortune tellers, I don't know if they're going to be same or different, when they read the tea leaves and there's just like a little bit of liquid at the bottom of the cup and maybe like, I don't know, some sugar residue or whatever somebody put in there, they would just make up the fortunes and it would be shit like, mmm, the tea leaves say, you will order another dessert or you will come back and spend more money at the restaurant in two days. Like it would be just a form of advertisement. Is that what it is? So it's like, it's... Of course, any sort of fortune telling is a charade, but yes, it's, it's okay. It's, it's just like fully it. on the surface, like you know, mm, you will spend another six days in the restaurant because you cannot find the exit. <laughs> All right, I, I, you know what? That's uh, I don't know. That seems a little too lowbrow for us. Uh, I guess I guess I kind of see where you're that coming seems, from. But... That seems like a little too like like low rent for us. Like, it needs to be like if we're gonna like like that's the word. Uh, Oh, God, con our customers. It needs to be a little bit more elaborate than that. <laughs> well, I guess the, the other side of it would be the other thing I was thinking, at least for the restaurant. I, I gravitated more towards we read tea leaves that don't exist because we use tea bags. But okay. we could serve our customers tea that is like 90% leaves, 10% water. So the only thing they have left <laughs> in their cup is leaves, and we try to read that. <laughs> I don't know, Rob. I'll let you figure out the details. Okay, I'll okay. let you hammer that's, them out. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, I, uh, tea, tea leaf readings are very strange. I mean, what, people know about them because of Harry Potter? I think that's the last time it came up in a mainstream movie. Uh, that's the last thing I can think of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Everybody uses tea bags. Yeah. yeah, it's more of an expression now than anything else. Yep. So I guess that brings us, uh, Zach, we have to talk about well, how, how is the Cinemodities grape orgy going to be run? We've already established that <sighs> I'm the wine queen or the grape queen or whatever. Um, I'll, I'll design my own little leaf crown, and uh, I, I can easily get naked in the, in the grape basin. But, but one of the things I wanted to bring up with, with this So many notion, weird things being said in this podcast I never <laughs> thought I'd hear. I can get I naked can always, by myself into the grape I, basin. <laughs> I can always get naked in the grape basin by myself. So, so the thing that really struck me, and this is, of course, today's day and age, it was very weird. I, I made the joke already that there were so many people in that grape basin. This is just one of those things that I see, and I'm like, man, we should do this, like have a little swimming pool of grapes in the restaurant, you know, but... That is the that is the complete opposite of social distancing. <laughs> so so how do we want to run this? Do I know the restaurant has never accounted for social distancing before? Oh, uh-huh. But but I I'm kind of also tempted just from a personal aspect. I don't want like people packed in like sardines into our great basin. Like that seems weird to me. I want some room to move around. I don't know, Rob. Do you want to be faithful or do you want to be social distancing? I would rather be faithful to Bacchus, the wine god, if anything. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think we know what our answer is. So you're saying that we should have people packed in like sardines? I think we should. I think one one night every month, forget the Great Basin. It should be in the glory, uh, caviar glory hole. Like, you oh know, like my. the fountain where it eventually pools in? That's where it should be. A caviar <laughs> orgy. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like that. That's an interesting idea because reinventing an old classic. Yeah, that and caviar is really gross and slimy and salty, and it would probably mess up people's skin. And we like that aspect of the restaurant as well. 
you're not messing up the customers, you're not doing it right at the same Amadi's restaurant. Yeah, so, ooh, that, that is interesting for sure. But, uh, but I guess other than the actual Great Basin aspect of it, I'd be fine if people just danced around in our restaurant and praised wine. I got nothing wrong with that. I mean, I'm not a simple, big wine person. I don't simple even, enough concept. I don't even. I I don't like red wine. I think that's come up before. I only drink when I do drink wine. I cook with it. It's white wine. So, I would love to squish some grapes, though. That'd be cool. <laughs> that's why I'm the great queen. <laughs> I like how this eventually just evolved into just Rob wants to step on grapes. Like I think yeah. it's just. It... <laughs> I've never gotten to do that before. Well, there you go. Do you remember the uh, the viral video of the news show where the woman like fell out of the grape thing and made all those weird noises where she's like, eh, eh, and everybody was like, are you okay? And she's like, eh. do you remember that? No. How that long ago was this? Years. That was like one of the original like meme type of things from the internet, oh. like long, long time ago. Music, eating international foods, having wine tours and tasting, vineyard tours, seminars, arts and crafts. It's a lot of fun. A whole day. Stop. Okay, I'll find the clip and put it in, and it's gonna be it's gonna be something else. I, I feel like every Monstover we somehow dig up the the, the corners of the internet because. I think Zach remembers when we talked about Goosebumps last year, I remembered the number to heaven from Fantastic Fest. Oh, yeah! So, so now I'm doing the, the grape woman falling out of the grape basin and screaming. <laughs> yeah, the number to heaven. Remember you trying to explain that to me? I'm like, Rob, what are you even talking about? You're like, Zach, the number to heaven! <laughs> Do you know the number to heaven? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and I remember, then you were like, oh, yeah, how the fuck did you remember this, Rob? And then, and then we up. do like a tight five on the girl with the dog for the father. <laughs> <laughs> but dad! <laughs> Are you ready to talk about why mom left? <laughs> <laughs> oh god, so web good. soup, man. <laughs> oh man, back before, uh, god, the, the, the weird rise and fall and rise and fall of Chris Hardwick. Yeah, Is he still canceled? Uh... I don't. Uh, maybe what, what? What did he got canceled because an ex girlfriend said he did bad things on the internet, right? Some I forget. Ex girlfriend said something. That's yeah, all that matters. And then, I mean, well, we still got Joe McHale. He's still around, right? Maybe. I guess he's. I guess. he's in the episode of Twilight Zone where the octopus hacks a computer. So yes, what? I I I guess I guess that's a good thing for him. I mean, I I haven't seen it yet, but from the uh, the descriptions of episodes I read, apparently he is also in season ten of the Twilight Zone. Hey kids, Rob meant to say the X Files, which was four years ago, but you know, I still have a problem. I think I said to Zach, I don't want to see him in anything but the soup. He's not yeah. like he's not good in Community. He's not good in anything else I've ever seen him in. He is a host. He's a, he is the Maria Menounos of the hard day and age. <laughs> <laughs> oh god the soup has been off the air for almost five years now yep yep geez. they brought it in new soup and like i don't think it worked out oh are you talking about the one that was on netflix no no that was with him they did yeah. new the soup on okay. e and it was horrible yeah i didn't see that one i did see some of the episodes it's like it's like talk show with joel McHale or something like his name is in the title 
and it was really weird because it was very much modeled after the soup. Yeah. But for some reason, which I think after I explain it, we will all understand why, Paul Feig had to show up in every episode. Oh, really? And it was terrible. It was unfunny, but literally every episode I watched, and they're all they're only like 30 minutes because it's like a Netflix talk show, thirty minute, like 28 to 30 minutes. Every single episode Paul Feig showed up in and made a bad joke. Every single one. And I'm like, stop it, Paul Feig. Stop it. <laughs> like, like, get out of here. <laughs> I know it didn't last long, so. Yeah, I, I only think I saw like maybe the first season because I, I knew it resembled the soup and I was looking for that nostalgia bug. But there was never anything like The Girl with the Dog for a Father, which of course was web soup, but you know, we never had um, I fucking love toy trains. We never had Spaghetti Cat, you know, all that stuff from the soup way back when that we, oh, we just laughed cat. about. Yeah. Oh, Spaghetti Cat. <laughs> I can't believe it's taken two and a half year, or two and a half plus years and Zach to leave for a few months for us to start talking about our history with the soup. <laughs> oh, God, I don't even know where to begin with the soup. I wouldn't even know where to delve into that on this show. I, this I just remember there was a great moment where the soup covered, I think it's in the fifth season of Lost, like one of the later seasons because there's six total, where Hurley explains to um, Cheech, who plays his father in Lost, Hurley just does like a solid 90 seconds on a summary of the plot of Lost and they played it on the soup and Joel McHale was like, why did I watch the first four seasons? I could have just seen this scene and like you laughed at that a lot and I was like, no, Zach, Lost is great. (laughs) (laughs) That sticks out to me. Oh, the soup. That was another hallmark of high school. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Every Friday, every, no, what what was it? Was it? Wednesday nights. Oh God, that now now you're getting in the where I don't. Wednesdays at ten. Wednesdays at ten. Okay, okay. Then they changed it to Fridays at ten. Yeah, the soup was the soup was something else. Soup but, was uh, fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you know the number to heaven? <laughs> <laughs> so many tangents. So, with that being said, Zach, do you have any other snacks for the restaurant? Are you uh, leaving? Uh, are you leaving me in charge this, of the grape orgy? This is a light movie for snacks. It is, it is, it is. There, there's even some I didn't mention, like, we get what, he goes to the office and the secretary is like, um, would you like tea and a sandwich? And he says yes. And he has, like, one sip of tea and doesn't even touch the sandwich, that type of thing. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a, once again, a product of its time that, you know, we don't get to see the detail in the food. The food's not focused on. Even in the scene we talked about before, even though it's it's kind of surreal and very interesting with Mr. Ruby going like, can I, you like this chicken? You want this chicken? It looks good. Can I have it? You you can't tell what the hell else is on that plate, you know? Yeah. So uh, that's that's fair. I mean, it's a good combination. We have we have our snacks at the end. Everybody's gonna like the grape orgy. Uh, Rob getting naked in a grape basin on his own. We also have the the themes of this movie. I think it ties together well. Maria Menounos wrestling. It, it was a, it was a slam dunk episode, Zach. There's no other so way to put it. much weird nonsense in this episode. <laughs> so I, I guess um, as I. I have done in the past with with uh, Monstober. I always like to get your thoughts on what we should play in reverse. Even though when you're not here, Zach, I just choose. And I I've, there's been a few episodes without you on it where I go, this is what we should play in reverse. If you have any dissenting thoughts, keep them to yourselves, and the episode ends. Um, but I don't know if you had any thoughts. I really like the opening credits music for this movie. Like the weird kind of, it's not a Wurlitzer organ, it's some type of organ, and it's very haunting sure. and ominous. And I figured like, oh, that would be great to hear in reverse. I don't think we really had a lot of music other than that in this movie, right? Nope, I agree. That'll work. 
Okay. Well, I think the last thing I want to ask you, Zach, is would you like to give any insight on what we are doing next week for Monstober, or are we keeping things uh, as a surprise as we go from week to week? All I'm going to say is don't let your kids film a movie at midnight with helicopters and pyrotechnics. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> God damn. We're going to be talking about manslaughter next week. That's a fun time. <laughs> so much manslaughter. So, and it's not even about the movie next week that we're going to be doing. It's a weird thing. It's, really, it's going to be another episode where there's going to be a lot of tangents about another movie directed by the same person that directed the film that we'll be talking about. You want to hear something really scary? I murdered two children. <laughs> <laughs> and an aging middle-aged actor. Absolutely. Okay, uh, it is good on my end, so we are ready to start whenever you are. All right, and away we go. Cinemodities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast where we discuss cinematic oddities. I'm Carly Beth. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> okay, okay. I had to think about the cat started meowing. It threw me off. All right, because Cinematis, <laughs> late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Sometimes these films gel, sometimes they crash hard <laughs> into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic slob. Do you want me to like send you a ch- like a like a, a Skype chat of the dialogue, or is this going to be the new shtick that every time you, the, the intro is slightly different from you? <laughs> After two to like two and a half years of it being spot on, now it's just a little different each time. <laughs> it just devolves into me just trying to put it together. Um, I don't know. I kind of like the idea of Zach loses Zach has lost part of his mind in his six month uh, absence. Yeah, that's fine. You know, <laughs> I kind of like that. I kind of like that as a concept. I have no idea if it'll work, but I kind of like that. All right, I'm going to try doing a take two because I told you the goddamn cat started howling. Um, all right, okay, take three. 